Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, in particular, the ongoing pandemonium. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer-slash-editor coming at you live from the very sunny Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But of course, never doing this alone, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh, last night, I, I watched uh, the home hometown hockey team here, the Dallas Stars, uh, win game seven against the Seattle Crackheads or Kraken, Kraken they're called, uh, yep. and uh, that means that uh, my two favorite teams uh, in uh, in the playoffs uh, this year are meeting for the Western Conference, so uh, we're having fun here uh, watching them, which is, it's, it's nice to be able to take a break from all the, the pandemonium work. Yeah, you know, I feel like based solely on proximity, I should be disappointed by that result, but I'll give you a congratulations anyway. Um, <laughs> now, not wasting any time, we've got a powerhouse of a show today, and um, at least one of our guests may have to leave fairly quick. So let's jump in and introduce our wonderful guests for today, Mr. George Webb and Mr. Mark Kulag. How are you, gentlemen? Great, guys. Uh, I'm here at the CDC in Atlanta, so just to let you know, it slightly resembles a fortress here in Atlanta, but uh, uh, Mark, uh, uh, you're up there in uh, Massachusetts, correct? Yep, Massachusetts, about uh, 20, 25 miles to the west of Boston, and uh, the, the hub, I think, of genetics and vaccines research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and well, I'm in my little home studio here. I guess I should wish the two of you the best of luck. Good one. <laughs> um, well, just briefly, um, for those who don't know, um, George, maybe you could introduce yourself uh, and, and just a brief background of what you do. I've got a couple of your books here that I picked up after your last discussion with Matthew. Um, but do you want to just briefly introduce yourself to the audience who may, if possible, they don't know who you are, introduce yourself to them? Sure. Um, I've been doing citizen journalism about seven years. You can see the CDC logo down here. And this is basically what I do. I go to places and I point my finger because I'm not as smart as Mark Kulak. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, uh, and Mark's the one who does the real deep dives. I'm I'm not the surface diver, the show diver. James O'Keefe kind of fits in that. I'm kind of mid mid depth. And then Mark is if you need the Titanic raised. So that's kind of what I do at realgeorgewebb1.com. I have to say, I'm a little disappointed you're only going to be able to join us for half an hour because it really is the case that uh, I think all, all the five of us sort of have a different uh, style of research. And it, it's one of the reasons why I'm really glad to have everybody here today for what is such an important topic. Completely. Agree. I'll stay as long as the battery lasts. I'll stay as long as the battery goes. 
Wonderful. Now, Mark, uh, George has already given you a bit of a glowing introduction there. Do you want to introduce introduce yourself as well to those who, again, somehow may not have seen your previous uh, work? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is Mark Kulak. My show is Houstonic.live, named after River in Connecticut. I'm a citizen researcher, archivist, worked in the data storage industry for a long time, and I use my professional skills as an analyst, uh, competitive intelligence analyst, et cetera, to do research of, you know, historical and current events, trying to get deeper insights. And I've been, uh, I've collaborated with George on and off for several years right now. He was one of the, the, the first two, I would say, to do real crowdsourcing from his audience. Uh, and uh, while most people wouldn't have given me the time of day, George did. So uh, I'm still I'm still thankful for that. Wonderful. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And speaking of joining us, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show the one, the only, Jonathan J. Cooey, Giga Ohm Biological. Thank you for joining us. How have you been? Do you want to just briefly reintroduce yourself as well before we dive in? Sure. Thanks very much for that. Um, I, I'm just happy to be here. Um, my name is Jonathan Cooey. Um, I'm a recovering academic biologist who uh, teaches biology on Twitch and uh, and privately consults for a few people, but that's about it. Uh, just trying to make a living scraping by as a biologist on the internet. Um, you can find me at giggleandbiological.com. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, Matthew, how about we dive right in? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of ways we could do this, but I decided to uh, to take a lot of the evidence that I had, or a lot of this. There's evidence, there's story, there's some education here, um, but to to put it into a slideshow, then we could just sort of discuss as we go. Um, and you know, I I don't know, uh, and it, maybe the way I'm going to do it is uh, we may go through through some slides and we may stop and and discuss for a little bit, but. Uh, you know, you guys can feel free to jump in whenever, uh, but I may go through three or four at a time. And George, I stole a slide from you right up front, as you can tell, or an image. Um, and, and maybe maybe you want to, you know, what, what connects the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 to Remdesivir? Can you do that in 30 seconds? Sure. Uh, this all relates to uh, Rumsfeld here shaking the hand of Saddam Hussein in 1983. A lot of people think that Rumsfeld was the guy who gave um, Saddam Hussein uh, anthrax. Maybe they built a lab there called Winbur uh, with tw- uh, 38 PhDs in the, uh, not far from Jonathan Cooey's old Penn State. Uh, and they basically were maybe giving anthrax to Iraq. Um, and we might do the first war to contain Saddam Hussein uh, for anthrax. This Winber lab, by the way, is where Bob Malone is on 9-11, we believe. And uh, then uh, we do a second invasion of Iraq. and We need countermeasures for anthrax on both occasions. And so the, all the Corona players, the Corona 911 players, are the same players as the uh, Corona or the anthrax 911 players. Bob Gallo, Daryl Galloway, Daryl Ricke, Stephen Hatfield, Bob Malone, uh, Michael Callahan. David Hone. So so that's my interest in this, just looking at the long arc here of anthrax. And later on at UPMC, the coronathrax, the coronathrax. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, we'll start out with, um, let's do a brief history of remdesivir. And I, I did steal a little bit just directly from Wikipedia. So I'll go ahead and uh, any place I didn't say Wikipedia, uh, there's the citation. 
Um, but remdesivir goes back to 2009, originally created to treat hepatitis C and respiratory syncytial virus, which oddly just sort of emerged out of season somewhat recently. Um, but it, it, it didn't work. And so they came back and tried it for Ebola and Marburg. And, you know, it, it's been found to have in vitro effects on some viruses, which really isn't that hard considering that viruses die when exposed to things like sunlight, right? Like it, it's actually hard not to kill a virus in, in vitro. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I mentioned that just because, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it really ever showed any kind of particularly great promise, um, you know, prior to now, but, um, it, you know, as a Gilead sciences and some us government and academic institutions, we'll come back to some of those later. And, uh, and then I guess uh, U.S. Amrid uh, jumped into the game a little bit, um, but uh, you know it, it never really it was never approved anywhere in the world for anything at all whatsoever before the plandemonium. So, well, is it was given an orphan designation actually in 2016, which is something that uh, it allows the the drug companies just to have a different legal status in order to. Um, in order to possibly have some chance of recouping costs. So it was kind of on the back burner uh, and, and not approved anywhere on, where in the world. Um, any thoughts before we move on? Well, I mean, Rumsfeld was the uh, chairman of the company of Gilead and his handpicked person uh, was John C. Martin to do all those, not just that vaccine uh, antiviral, but also hep c and also their hiv vaccine so this this has had a long history with john c martin at remdesivir yeah and and the company changed kind of quickly uh gilead was founded in 1987 uh original name uh oligogen i don't know if i'm saying that right um but yeah uh, we've got you know washington university uh in st louis which was where i went to college uh johns hopkins school of medicine and harvard business school and so very quickly, somehow, uh, he gets in contact with Donald Rumsfeld and convinces him to be on the board of directors like a year after the company's founded. So uh, Rumsfeld's not running the show yet, but he's on the board of directors. And the company, um, it, you know, right now it's a biotech company in the early stages. And so they're working on making small strands of DNA, uh, antisense therapy, uh, you know, uh, Early on, this is this is even like pre-human um, genome project, uh, which I, I was actually uh, part of for a, a scarce few weeks in 1995, uh, right after they finished um, sequencing the human genome. But this is before all that, so you know it's very early on. But the company evolved pretty quickly, and here's uh, here's Donald Rumsfeld. And by the way, that that is a make-believe picture of Donald Rumsfeld with a nuclear bomb going off in the background. That's just the way I imagine him. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, he was named chairman of Gilead Sciences in 1997 and was there for a few years before, for the second time, becoming uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense. He, he was both the youngest man to become Secretary of Defense and also the oldest, which is a, a, an interesting piece of his story. So thoughts here, Mark? Oh, you're on mute, Mark. No, no, uh, 
Uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, the company has a uh, they they struggle to come out with products until until Tamiflu, I think, was their first big um, uh, product. John C. Martin, who uh, George mentioned just a little while ago, was their CEO for almost 20 years, starting in I think it was 97, 98 up till 2016, I believe. Yeah, and, and they they kind of bought and sold companies. Um, and oh, and, and John C. Martin's father, I think, didn't he synthesize NAC? Is that correct, George? There was some. I don't know that one. I, I was just going to say I would throw in Donald Rumsfeld as the shadow uh, yeah. Secretary of Defense during uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush as well, because <laughs> the PEPFAR and so forth, with all the stuff with Ronald Reagan, really was a shadow defense program. Uh, and also the Scoop Jackson, Mark covered Scoop Jackson Foundation as was a sort of a front. Now it's Bill and Melinda Gates. But um, I don't know about NAC. That's a good question. Jonathan Cooey would have a much better angle on that. Well, one thing I noticed is that, is that uh, by the 90s, they're getting into the HIV game. And yeah, they, they got Tamiflu. But other than that, they seem to be uh, seem to have started to focus more on HIV specifically. And, um, but then more recently, let's see, 2003. Uh, what do we have going on here? Well, uh, they, during the avian flu pandemic scare, Gilead Sciences revenue from Tamiflu almost quadrupled to 44.6 million. Wow, that seems like a pedestrian number these days. That's the kind of number that would have been scandalous for people to hear back then, right? And th th these days, if you're not saying billion with a B, I mean, you're just talking about like belly button lint, you know? Well, if you want to look at their anti-HIV drug, it was also made through a, a false flag terror campaign uh, that was 83 which created a presidential emergency plan for uh, for AIDS, which was PEPFAR. All the same people that were in all your favorite players for coronavirus, Burks, Redfield, Fauci, all came out of PEPFAR. So um, I would argue that uh, John, all of the blockbuster John, uh, drugs Jonathan C. Martin did came from sort of terror, false flag incidents. Interesting. I, so I can't remember the name of their HIV drug, but it was a blockbuster. And it was extremely expensive as well. Well, more recently, um, they've been into kinase biology and chemistry. They acquired Aresto Biosciences for $225 million. They acquired uh, Calistoga Pharmaceuticals for $375 million. I don't know these names. Anybody here? Well, I'll just say this. Uh, Jonathan's the expert. So, Jonathan, I'll defer to you. But there's a lot of work in silencing the immune system. The immune system has chemical messengers with called interferons and in interleukin, IL or IN, usually abbreviations. So if you can quiesce the immune system, that acts as a sword for your side. You can cause an, a cytokine storm in your enemy. That's a good thing. They get very tired, flu-like symptoms. Uh, shortness of breath, heart attacks when they exert themselves, and then you quiesce your system. Uh, Dr. Frank Plummer talked about this with HIV. So a lot of these small peptide chains, 10, 12 uh, 
amino acids long peptide chains are can be analogs or look a lot like these chemical messengers. So a lot of these companies are involved, Antisense and silencing RNA is what it's called. A lot of them are these short chains that Bob Malone is is modeling in a computer program with Andy DeGroote of Epivax. And Mark's done a lot on computer, CompuVax and the computation involved with these small chains. Uh, we'll get back to it. Another um, uh, one of the co-founders of, uh, and I just had to go through back in my notes, I haven't looked at this stuff in a while, of Gilead is Harold uh, Weintraub. Uh, he was born in uh, 45. Um, he, uh, he actually studied under Francis and Crick where he did his postdoc work. And eventually he joined uh, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Institute uh, up in uh, the Seattle area. And Fred Hutch is huge. They were, they definitely were uh, on the, the forefront of trying to find different ways of doing gene therapy in the 1990s. They got into some trouble with it with respect to some bone marrow transplants. Um, University of Washington had the largest fetal cell tissue bank in the world in the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, so there's a lot of dark stuff revolving University of Washington, Red Hutch, which came out later, of course, in the 70s, which not many people get into. Um, and when you know that the Gates, both of Bill Gates' parents were um, uh, reagents of the uh, University of Washington and their role there, you see that that's way more important than their you know, potential or alleged family connections to the Fed bank or whatever. It's always been genetics and cancer research, gene therapy, tons of money coming out of the uh, government programs to allow the creation of companies, corporations, using college research dollars. But anyways, going back to Harold Weintraub, one of the three co-founders, um, he, uh, he, he died of an aggressive, uh, aggressive brain cancer. In, uh, I think he was only, uh, he's only 49 years old. Um, 19 uh, in 1995, not too long after really uh, Gilead got started going. So uh, the company does have a little bit of a legacy of some of the uh, forefront scientists there um, succumbing to uh, early demises. Well, before we go too far, uh, maybe we'll just take a quick look uh, at, you know, the fact that there, there are a lot of the ordinary things that we expect these days from pharmaceutical companies, uh, funneling kickbacks, um, lawsuits over intellectual property and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, let, now let's move to the story that's probably a little bit more important for most of the audience. You know, it's good to have some background, right? It's good for people to get a sense that there, I mean, these connections that we've talked about already, somebody could probably write a book mm -hmm. already on what we've talked about, but um, how did remdesivir get to be the standard of care? And on the left here, this is actually the beginning of a chapter of a book that I was writing back in 2020. Um, and, you know, I, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm going to early uh, 2020. Uh, February 4th, Chinese medical researchers declared the urgent need to identify effective antiviral agents to combat uh, 2019 NCOV, which was the original name for SARS-CoV-2 or might have been the original name for SARS-CoV-2. Um, and yeah, the letter goes on to detail how chloroquine and remdesivir showed greater promise than other candidates during in vitro tests conducted by Chinese researchers. Well, that's interesting that for whatever reason, whatever things that they might have tested, they have hydroxychloroquine, which uh, for, for anybody in the audience who doesn't know, hydroxychloroquine had 13, uh, sorry, 17 years of research 
backing the, the notion that it was going to be a good candidate for stopping coronavirus. Whereas remdesivir had never really worked on anything. So you've got literally the most repurposed drug, perhaps in the history of medicine, and something that has never worked. And in China, they picked up these two. How amazing, right? Um, <clears throat> so, and then, you know, on the right, uh, let's, oh, that, that's, that's actually part of the, the letter. That is actually uh, the beginning of it. And, and so, you know, early in 2020, we've got the question that's going around. Are there any viable coronavirus treatments? Can I just make a quick comment on the pairing of hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir? Those are called pairing studies. It's for when you have a, a cocktail, when you're evaluating a cocktail. And this, this was used a lot in HIV. And what, you, what it allows you to do, it allows you to put in a top horse with a dog and say it's a team and you evaluate it as a pair. And the pair that evaluated that pair of drugs was Zhang Li of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and Michael Callahan of DARPA. And that's how we got the early signal that Bob Malone talks about that hydroxy uh, remdesivir might be the standard of care. Um, and also you're gonna find out later how hydroxychloroquine gets knocked out. Mark will talk about domain. I won't steal his thunder, that's his research. Yeah, well, maybe maybe we go ahead and talk about domain now. I've got it in like slide 80 or something like that. But George, if you're going to have to go before that, maybe this is the moment. Uh, go ahead and explain what domain is. Domain's a DARPA program uh, run by the DTRA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. It's using computational methods. Four different teams were established. One was at the University of Vanderbilt um, in Tennessee. There was three other teams. I think one of them was the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where Michael Callahan studied at Southern Research. Uh, there's two others, but they were they were four teams competing. Uh, there was a team up in Boston, I believe, uh, looking at what's known as the regional binding domain. And what it's doing is trying to say, is there a safe, effective drug that's been successful in the market and tested that we could use quickly to stop this uh, pandemic? That's what domain is supposed to be about. And um, so these supercomputers were used in this process. You have various uh, different versions of this. Bob Malone was involved in this program for a while. His protege, a guy, an Air Force colonel by the name of Dan Wattendorf, is really the juice behind, <laughs> this, whole, behind this whole program. And uh, he's, I believe he was one of the key guys in Operation Warp Speed. And Wattendorf, uh, there's a lot of information out there about him. Yeah, and I, ju I just want to throw this out there. Um, I, I feel 99% certain that domain is fake. And, and here's, here's a, a reason that I'll explain why. Uh, right now, we're, we're being introduced all of a sudden to large language models. And wow, artificial intelligence has moved forward so much. It can put together paragraphs that will convince your teachers at school to give you an A. Um, but the fact of the matter is people have shown very quickly that, that, you know, whatever biases are behind the information that's being pulled in or programmed into the large language model, you wind up having, you know, these massive biases, but even, even assuming all of that, you, there are still mistakes within, you know, the large language models within just, you know, one paragraph of good information. And as far as the information complexity goes, let's say that you have approximately 250 characters uh, in in a um, in a sentence, the level of complexity is 
is less than 1,000 nucleotides long. And that even assumes that we know exactly what nucleotides are to the same degree that we know what letters are. So the idea that we are looking at like tens of thousands of nucleotide sequences that make up all these amino acids and uh, that, that form proteins and all this kind of stuff, the, the idea that we are at the that that we can hit that with today's computing power or even to, tomorrow or ever like the idea of getting uh, to that level of complexity you know you're going to use up all the energy in the sun trying to compute that okay so let, me, I, let me take a shot at how they did the data reduction i agree with everything you just said it's a it's more than the atoms in the universe probability but what they did was the reason why the domain programs called the domain is they just worried about the part of the molecule, the antigen and the, and the uh, epitope, that's called the regional binding domain, which is, like you said, a short section compared to the whole DNA of the, let's say, 30,000 base pairs. It's a short, like, 1,000 base pairs. But they went even further. Let's say my fingers define, I'm sorry to try to do this right, the fingers define the regional binding domain. They went with the subdomain strategy, short uh, proton segments, uh, excuse me, not proton segments, uh, short oligonucleotides, 10, uh, 10 was the number they used. And they just did one of the fingers. If, if let's say there's five fingers in the regional binding domain, they just substituted one finger. And this actually did happen with a company Marcus covered as well called Icosavax. What they do is they take the uh, genetic innards basically out of the inside, keep the eggshell, and then they worry just about the antigen that's being presented. And so you have this configuration and then you just do all the, all the combinations of that middle finger, which is called a subdomain. And that's how they actually came up with the Icosavax, the University of Washington, Icosavax, the Kiesler lab. That's actually how they came up. Now, was a, like you said, uh, Matthew, which is very adroit, is that it failed miserably. <laughs> so I'm not saying it works. I'm just saying that's what they tried. Emily... Emily, okay, uh, so there, there's a simplification strategy. We don't need to do the whole thing. Um, but then I'm going to point out that if it worked, we'd be doing this for every disease that ever was. Uh, and, and we would just be spitting out things and we would exactly. be testing how closely they matched. But the fact of the matter is, in, you know, in biology and in medicine, mechanisms are really, really hard. We are only a decade out from discovering why aspirin works. Right. It, mechanisms it, are really hard and it feels like to have a successful program like that, you would, you would need mechanisms. So I, I still feel pretty secure saying that I don't believe that this program, I, I think that it is, it is literally a fabrication and that maybe you need a salesman to sell that fabrication. Well, there's, uh, there's what this program or this programming uh, platform is, uh, what it can do. And then there's, or what they say it can do, right? And those are both also complicated statements. So George reviewed what they said it can do. And what they said it can do is also based upon, um, well, I would say, well, propaganda or foreshadowing, just to, just this word novel, novel virus, that there can be uh, a disease causing agent that's so unique that it would be impossible to survive without a unique solution to it. Somehow, as far as we know, humans and most animals have made it pretty far without having to use computers to design solutions to problems. But now with something novel, the threat is so serious that this is what we need to do. So there's been a, a sales pitch there that goes on 
that's been built uh, built up for right. many years with multiple outbreaks um, to, to convince us that this is something that we would need. And that's part of the uh, yeah, description of the of what the product is. So just right there, before we even get into the technicals, right, that is assumed because if if this need for of novel uh, solutions to novel viruses doesn't exist, then there's no reason to have this platform at all. Uh, so right there is a, is is everything has to be built upon that. Well, I, I just want to throw in that there was an attempt with prophecy. There was an attempt with a program called Reframe. There was an attempt, like Mark, you covered with CompuVac. Each of these AI models gets better and better. And Epivax, I think, is the last generation or maybe something that Dan Wattendorf knows about that I don't. But that this, like you said, trying to limit this complexity is the, is the key to the reduction. And I just, you know, so many things like uh, you talk with to people with autoimmune disorders and uh, doctors prescribe different portions of that population, eight different medicines, right? Like, yeah, a lot of times there isn't even going to be a fit, but, um, you know, I, I think, I think uh, we should go ahead and move on so that we can get to uh, uh, some other key parts of this, um, of this. I'm going to point out right here, this, uh, this article in particular, are there any viable coronavirus treatments? One of the things mentioned in this article is nano silver. And just, just for the trivia of this, I want to point out that there was a person who had to go to court over trying to push nano silver as a solution to this. And they had previously tried to push nano silver during a prior epidemic also. Mm -hmm. And this woman, uh, her name is uh, Rima Labo. And she just so happens to be the widow of the former head of INSCOM, U.S. military intelligence, Albert Stubblebein. And INSCOM... So Inscom is at Fort Belvoir. And my, my point here is that you, there may be a solution that works. They're just not going to tell you about it. They're going to keep it as a private DARPA because if I shell out the genetics and just make it a nanoparticle and imitate the antigen, I can now privately take all of the things that work in nature and now create a, a drug library that's a proprietary drug library for me. Exactly. So, and getting people to, to, uh, to, to buy into the, that they need a novel solution to a novel virus, you also need to create uh, you know, uh, this uh, uh, an argument uh, to get people to fight over, you know, uh, Coke or Pepsi or ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and have a religious war mm -hmm. about that. And to the point where they are so invested in that argument that they don't even know that there's probably many other obvious things which would already work. Instead, they're and they fighting need about a new God. They need a new God, the new AI God. And look yeah. who has it for them whether or not it's real i guess we can put a pin on the question as to whether or not it's real but either way uh it's baiting the same solution well there's been platforms that have done, tried to do something similar right and they, you know investigative stuff but trying to reduce the complexity of life down to you know a few uh, macros in a, an excel sheet is uh it's very difficult to do that um and we're been suggested that someone has been able to do that i I don't think that's possible. They may have repurposed something else, a little a slice of it and renamed it. And again, it's part of creating the narrative of, oh, guess what? Novel virus. There's some novel solutions, potentially repurposing some things. Oh, it spits out an answer. Oh, remdesivir. How about that? I guess we should trust it because it's a computer, right? 
Well, I think one of the things to, to point out here from the biological perspective is that if we follow the story and the logic that George Webb presents, which is that they focused on the receptor binding domain of the, the spike protein, it's not my understanding of the mechanism of hydroxychloroquine has anything to do with the interaction with the spike protein, but it's, it's the regulation of pH inside of the endosome that allows the, the virus to, to release its genetic contents into the cell and start the infectious cycle. So the computer program, if it was aimed at this relatively mundane idea of identifying proteins that would have likely three-dimensional interactions, then in no way, shape, or form would it be have any propensity to identify, for example, remdesivir as a drug that would do that. Remdesivir is a drug that interferes with the replication process, again, completely not associated with the receptor binding domain of the spike. So the whole principle that they were using that as a target underscores the idea that it couldn't possibly have been useful in finding those drugs. And, 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 and when I, it didn't, go well, ahead. I just, I just want to clarify because I think there may be some confusion as to whether or not hydroxychloroquine was one of the drugs that domain spat out. It's my understanding. It's not the list I have is remdesivir, famotidine, uh, cella, cella coxib, which is a Pfizer drug. Uh, for arthritis, and then mectazan, so ivermectin. I don't think hydroxychloroquine was spat out there, um, just, just right. as a point of clarification. And, and that should have made anybody in the room scratch their head. Right, but uh, well, we'll, we'll move they, on. Yeah, we'll move on, but I think they pointed at the H2 histamine receptor, and that's why they got the answers. That's why they got the, all the antihistamines with the high binding affinity. Uh, Celecoxib, uh, you know, is a, um, you know, a, allergy and then the other one is for stuffy nose so yeah but we'll move on so this is that march 20th article in intelligencer again and when it gets to remdesivir you know it kind of poo-pooed hydroxychloroquine in the article you know um it, it it focused on the fact that it has side effects which is kind of funny because the side effects are lower on a, than the average medicine um that's a, that's approved but uh you know with remdesivir they focused on this quote, improve the clinical condition of the first patient, which I wonder how they determined that. I mean, most people just kind of get better, right? I mean, how do you know in a one-of-one one trial <laughs> whether or not the medicine helped the person get better? It seems kind of uh, presumptuous, but there there is this first patient. Uh, and Mark, I've heard you talk about him, Snohomish man. Is that the right phrase? Uh, yes, the uh, first person who was identified symptomatically, presumably, as having COVID, the COVID-19 disease, America's patient zero, uh, a 35-year-old 35, 35 uh, Asian male who uh, lived in the Washington, DC, uh, excuse me, Seattle area, spent three months in Wuhan, flew back on January 15th and checked himself into a hospital on the 18th. And uh, we don't know who he is, no face, no full name. Uh, but immediately the CDC picked up on it. And like within two days or three days, they had the x-rays and uh, they uh, approved compassionate use of remdesivir. And miraculously, it worked perfectly. So he had a perfect recovery, which is a relief. 
Uh, but that's been used as uh, a just a, as a reason that wow, this stuff could work. It could save lives. Well, and so there we are. Uh, you know, we we have, but very early on, we have kind of presumptuous literature um, with an anonymous individual. Mm -hmm. So now, can I just can I just say one thing to Jonathan oh, yeah. Tui's point because it's extremely important. But Jonathan is incredi incredibly correct that it's hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir is inside the cell action. It's not the outside binding affinity at all. Okay. What happened with remdesivir in the domain studies, it was paired as it was paired. It's again, this pairing of, you know, of subverting the remdesivir below as the standard of care. So it got, if you read the domain studies, it was paired in with uh, famotidine. It was paired in with celecoxib, uh, et cetera. So I just want to keep that in mind. It was never evaluated from any kind of affinity binding or any of that. It was always paired in as a as a standard of care. On a public relations level, it allows the possibility of false dichotomies, perhaps. Yeah, you could put your dog in there and you know uh, sneak it in. Well, so this is an article that just came out today that I'm going to encourage people to go uh, find and read uh, by Dr. Todd Kenyon. Uh, who's somebody I've, I've talked with. Uh, he's a good fellow. Um, he was writing about the Diamond Princess. And I learned a little bit new, uh, you know, some new stuff from this article. But it was good for me to revisit this because I feel like I have so much better grasp of just reading about this now. But, um, you know, there's thousands of people on this cruise ship. And because one person had gotten off along the way who tested positive, that was uh, the excuse for just like beginning to lock down everybody. Right. So you have thousands of people on this cruise ship, median age, 69 years old. And by the way, I looked up actuarial tables of 69 year olds. You should approximately have like one in 70 ish of them should die each year. And because the mortality curve you know, ramps up so quickly, I'm going to say you would expect one in 50 of these people to die each year out of the let's just call it. Um, well, you've got 2,666 passengers. So you would expect, um, I don't know, 60 deaths a year, so five per month. And we'll look at what happens here. You have 14 deaths over a little over two months when you might expect 11, 12, or something like that. But this is following a very stressful experience in which about a fifth of them got SARS, were, were, you know, tested positives for SARS-CoV-2. And this is supposed to be a pretty deadly disease amongst the elderly. But ultimately, you know, when you look at this statistically, this should say there's no real panic or maybe there was nothing really wrong to begin with. Or, or you know, who, who knows exactly what happened here. But I just wanted to point out that statistically, this is not an unusual death curve. But, you know, I'm going to go back for a second because... Uh, Todd pointed out something that I didn't know. Some of these patients received remdesivir. I didn't know that. Yeah, this that's is that's because of the guy. That's because of the guy they put out there, uh, which was Michael Callahan. They put him on on the USS Pike, which was the Coast Guard cutter in, off Los Angeles Harbor with the Grand Princess, but don't or the Diamond Princess, but don't forget about the Grand Princess a month before that. Same story in Japan for the early, you know, kind of mass formation psychosis in February. Remember, you had one of these in February, and then the, the LA one was March. So there was a similar type of 
of you know uh, mass formation psychosis around this in February off the coast of Japan. And, and by the way, um, my understanding is nobody actually died on the boat. Oh, really? The, the, the people who died um, had already disembarked. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I have that 100% right, but I, I'm going to jump forward a little bit. This is May 1st, 2020. Trump announcing mm. uh, the EUA for Indesivir, and he has the, um, the head of, of Gilead in his office with him for this nice, you know, nice warm presentation. Now I'm going to talk about dichotomies in a little bit different way. This is something that, um, that I felt like I recognized, uh, the, the moment I, I felt like I saw things wrong, um, maybe like, um, beginning of March, I started to pay attention to DDR Realt's work and I, I instantly felt, um, that there was something wrong going on, but especially I was, I was really convinced on March 19th, when I saw the Trump press conference, he mentions hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. And I feel like I'm watching a movie mm. and, and everything just felt so surreal. But, you know, I, I've got this, this theory that ash conformity uh, can be made much more extreme. If you have something like dichotomous chiefs, the chief of your tribe and the chief of the other tribe, because not only do we have, you know, this sort of, Dunbar number and the people within our circle we trust more. They're going to make, you know, if we're going to be fooled by somebody, we're going to be fooled by them being fooled and going mimetically with the flock with them. But I think people do have like a slot that says chief. And we live in such a parasocial society at this point. I think that Trump and Fauci were arranged knowingly or not, but I think that they knew I, that's my personal opinion um, as, as the two chiefs, and each one of them representing a different direction of medicine. So I, I want to throw that out there just for people to think about, if nothing else. Well, Burks and Redfield, I'm sorry to jump in, but Burks and Redfield is the same thing. Burks was three times the numbers in the projections that the CDC was. She was, you know, Silent Invasion, her book. She was getting her data directly from Michael Callahan on the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess. Mm. So that And Italy was the other outbreak that she was getting her early... Uh, you know, mass formation psychosis uh, doomsday predictions from. It's like we have Edward Bernays meets A-B testing. I, it really feels that way in a lot of ways to me, but I'm going to point this out now because we're going to talk about uh, a trial for hydroxychloroquine. Since we're talking about these dualities here, we've got this competition going on. Two days before the March 19th press conference, which was the first day most people had ever heard of hydroxychloroquine, I mean, sure, 5 million Americans take it, 6 million somewhere in that ballpark, and some people take it when they go overseas for malaria or whatever, but probably the majority of Americans, I, I didn't know it when I heard it. It doesn't mean I hadn't heard it before, but it means that I, you know, no one in my family has an autoimmune disorder that would be using it, and I hadn't traveled to a malaria nation, right? So um, two days apart, two days before, Bullware announced a trial on hydroxychloroquine, the first U.S. trial on hydroxychloroquine at the University of Minnesota, and not one person in the press picked up the press release. That's amazing when you see articles being published in the same month going, do we have anything that might work? And you have this drug that's been studied already for 17 years that a lot of people felt would be the first thing off the shelf and would probably work. So 
okay, what's this this study going on here? Okay, uh, a randomized trial of hydroxychloroquine is post-exposure prophylaxis. And you've been around somebody who has the virus. Maybe you're going to catch the virus. And actually, it's it's actually two studies in one. Uh, they ran them at the same time. Some people had already begun to have symptoms and some people hadn't. They just had exposure. They were both being run out of University of Minnesota. One's called, people usually refer, refer to them as the Bullware study and the Skipper study. But Bullware is the head of all this, David Bullware. Um, so, you know, what, what were they doing? What did they find? Well, you know, let's take a look at the affiliations real quick because this is going to matter to us. Let's see. I'm looking. I don't see, a, you know, you know what I don't see? I don't see Gilead. Maybe we can trust this guy. Oh, wait. He just forgot to throw that in there. Oh. So David Bulware is somebody who had, um, you know, work with Gilead before, but did not mention it in his affiliations or conflicts of interest. So that's kind of interesting already. Did you pick up on that? That's a good, that's good work. Uh, and a lot of what we're about to cover are actually my notes from 2020. Uh, when I decided we we're going to do this, I went back and looked and I didn't even realize how much notes I'd taken. And some of it I didn't even fully understand until now. It's a lot happens. easier in hindsight. Happens with me too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, oh, look, March 24th, 2020. He has a real good new scientific advising job. Uh, advisor for infectious diseases with Revive Therapeutics. The study hadn't even finished. I mean, it was only announced a week ago. Huh. That's nice. Okay. Well, uh, there's something very, very interesting about, about this study. Um, now, I'll go ahead and say this. What they said in the bullware trial was, oh, hydroxychloroquine did not prove to be effective. Mm -hmm. Just for clarity, the hydroxy the, the treatment arm was doing better than the placebo arm, but P was a little bit bigger than 0 0.05. So it didn't prove to be effective. Um, well, something very interesting about the trial is that it didn't use an inert placebo. Ordinarily, you would expect something like talc to be used. But in fact, for whatever reason, Boware decided to choose folate, which is interesting because in March 2020 also, folate was being suggested as being a treatment. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a uh, paper out of Iran in preprint, didn't get published for well over a year. But it was in preprint already suggesting a mechanism by which folate could be a blocker or, blocker or inhibitor to the ACE2 furin uh, enzyme and the furin cleavage site. So here we have this, I guess what you might call a false placebo. And this is not the only trial during 2020 involving hydro hydroxychloroquine in particular and false placebos. I counted at least six. Three of them run at the University of Minnesota. So, um, oh yeah, and let's look at this. They said it didn't work, this antiviral in the bullware trial. But wow, it looks like the sooner you get it, the better it does. That kind of looks like an antiviral curve, doesn't it? Seems suggestive. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we shouldn't just be computing a p-value from yes or no. And remdesivir has value um, the, the sooner you use it. That's great work, Matt. That really is great stuff. That's juice. Yeah. 
And then, I, like I said, that there were actually two trials in one because it depended on whether or not you started having symptoms as, you know, after you enrolled as to whether or not you were considered post-exposure or considered early treatment. Uh, and in the skipper trial, you also had a curve that showed the earlier that you took the medicine, the better it performed. So both of these trials, neither one of them reached statistical significance. Oh, but by the way, the trial was cut short. They only went through about a, a third of the number of people that they had originally planned in the in the prospective trial plan. So it was if you you know replicated the trials three times over, they both achieved statistical significance. Huh. So okay, you know what? I always always wonder too, like you know, like why do people even believe that? You know, like do people even know what p values are? You know, for the most part, they don't. You know, uh, p-values are something that are better applied to something like artificial intelligence than they are like a one-off for a trial like this. But it really comes down to how it is you decide your distribution should look and what, you know, and how you're modeling it. There are infinitely many p-values that are correct. Um, but something that that looks at a curve like that seems like a, a better way to evaluate such a study. So I would say they're computing the wrong p-values. Um, but let's, let's take another. Here's a, a researcher. Uh, I think he was from Brazil, Watanabe, and he reevaluated the trial. And he said, you know what? They incorrectly computed the time to treatment because these uh, doses were mailed out and they didn't take this into account. And that once you take this into account, actually, you get a statistically significant positive outcome. There were a total of six different reevaluations, all of which found statistical significance in favor of hydroxychloroquine. And here's one from my friend, David Weissman. And this is the one where Bulware got taken to the mat. David Weissman published his reanalysis and he literally took their data. He got a hold. He actually had to go back and forth with the Bulware team and finally pry the data out of their hands and then measure the smallest unit intervals he could. He took out a ruler and was measuring unit intervals, <laughs> like literally off of a graph to figure out how long it was to, to get the best estimate of, of how quickly people took the medicine after exposure or after symptoms began. And he came up with a positive statistically significant result. And now what happened with this is um, he published, he published this reanalysis and he made comments in the paper, the Bulware paper with the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, asked them to recompute the p-value and they would not do it. They would not do it and they finally just made a statement, we stand with David Bulware. And that was it. That's, that's all they'd ever do. So they are standing on, I, I think they're standing on zero legs. They're doing some kind of a guru floating in the air job. Yeah, you could pay a team. You could pay a team just to screw up other people's studies. You know, uh, just uh, put flies in the ointment, uh, introduce f uh, false placebos, introduce false timing, uh, inaccurate statistical reporting. All these things get their get their molecule, get what their molecule looks like, and then farm it out to your lab in Russia, and then have an analog produced, and then get it to market faster than they do because they're going yeah. through the FDA, and we're going to go off market. And we will talk about a number of ways in which it appears trials were sabotaged. Like I mentioned, six 
false placebo trials. Um, I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but the three at University of Minnesota, there's one, Barnaby uh, was uh, chief researcher in one, uh, Rich Assingham. Uh, but that's one way to do it. There were also studies out of several dozen, I don't know how many uh, early treatment studies there were, I'm just going to throw out like, or, or maybe, so I'm sorry, prophylaxis studies. Maybe there are like 80 prophylaxis studies for hydroxychloroquine. About 12 of them were negative for hydroxychloroquine. But here's an interesting fact. 10 of those 12 that were negative were, were specifically studies on people with autoimmune conditions or else mostly people on, or largely people on autoimmune, largely or totally. Um, and that's it. And if you took those out and you look, it's just a sea of positive studies. And it is true that finally last year, the Harvard School of Medicine did their own meta-analysis and said, yeah, this is effective as a prophylaxis. So the Harvard School of, of Public Medicine, and if, it's, and if it works as a prophylaxis, then almost surely that's because there's antiviral action, which means it would work at, you know, pre-exposure prof prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, early treatment. An antiviral should do all of those things at once or none of those things at once. Generally, it's possible to, to treat, to, to do well in one of those without the other. But, you know, just on, on the Weissman study, I want to point this out. When he broke people down into healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers, for those receiving treatment in the first three days, you have about 65% lower development of symptomatic COVID, 65% lower. That's statistically significant. P is 0 0.025. That's the way to break things down. That's, you know, that's most of the population right there, that line. That's most of the population, early treatment. So now here's here's interesting. I'm just sharing this just because it's fun, because uh, in August of 2021, Steve Kirsch put me on an email thread with David Bulware, and I happened to say, um, no, thank you. This is a mass murder and a psychopath. Hmm. And uh, David Bulware said, no, the, uh, I'm, I'm no longer talking to you anymore. Uh, and, and David Weissman said, I will always remember where I was when I received that email. And he called me and he said, <laughs> I like the way he put it when he called me. He said, I will always remember where I was when Matthew Crawford called David Bulware a psychopath. And you know what? I tell this story not because I call a lot of people psychopaths, nor do I, do I know if he's ever been clinically evaluated for psychopathy. It's not even in the DSM anymore. I mean, you know, David, I'm sorry. You know, it was a casual comment, though I think it may be true if if there were still such a, a standard. Um, but but I, you know, I, I think the point being there are times. There are times when you formulated enough of an opinion of somebody. That there is good reason to just say so. That's my opinion. and I'm sticking to it. I agree with your assessment. So. Who funded the trials at the University of Minnesota? Jan and David Bazuki, and we'll talk about them. Steve Kirsch. And, uh, you know, more than a year later, he was still communicating with David Bulware, despite this, what seems like a very badly and obviously rigged study, in, in, in my humble opinion. Uh, Alliance of Minnesota Chinese Organizations and the Minnesota Chinese Chamber of Commerce. And we'll talk about three of the four of these. 
But it is interesting to see two Chinese organizations amongst the funders of this trial. So who we're going to talk about first? Oh, AMCO, uh, um, Alliance of Minnesota Chinese Organizations. So I guess one of their, amongst their leadership is Dr. John Zhang, who is a fertility doctor. And, you know, why is that interesting? Well, according to the Washington Post, he invented the three-parent baby. Didn't I just hear the other day of the first three-parent baby? It, 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 has anybody else seen this? No, but, but, but I am thinking of that. the I am thinking of the South South Park episode where they found a way to give monkeys four four of some things. <laughs> um, well, it, it goes a little bit deeper than that. Apparently, this uh, Doctor Zhang is friends with uh, He Jiangku. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's the CRISPR baby guy in China who wants to make designer babies. So how interesting is that? He's not making designer babies, Matt. He's curing AIDS. He, <laughs> he made them invulnerable to AIDS. He created super children. Don't 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 mischaracterize super his babies. Work. Super babies, huh? Well, um, that's you know, I I kind of think this is interesting because you know as much transhumanism talk as there is, there is some reality to the interest in it, right? And this is a guy, Brian Bishop. I met this man in January at a dinner that I held in Austin. And I talked to him for only about maybe six minutes because there were a lot of other guests that I needed to talk to. But he told me while we were there that he secretly funded one of the mRNA vaccines using Bitcoin. He's a, he's a Bitcoin guy. He's an OG Bitcoiner. Goes all the way back to like the early Satoshi roundtables. Um, he's in some interesting circles, some with the PayPal mafia. Uh, he, he's friends with one of the guys at Roundtable Media who uh, ran the global COVID summit where we gave talks that just happened to be at Rockefeller's mansion in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, interesting thing about Brian Bishop, he, he's, he calls himself a, a do it yourself biohacker, but in particular uh, he, he was in the human genome project circles funding some research literally at a Ukrainian bio lab uh, and and that is that is reported uh, here in this article in the MIT Technology Review. Mm. Um, but also the reason he got sort of pushed out of some of these circles is he was shopping a business plan for designer babies. And so there's there is an interesting question: Would you want to prevent people from understanding that hydroxychloroquine works? in order to keep the pandemic going so that you can start testing genetic products. When Brian and I discussed whether or not the mRNA vaccines worked, what he said was, it depends on what you mean by worked. Did it stop the disease? I don't think so. Did it, were cells successfully transfected? Then I think so. And I'm paraphrasing him, but that's pretty close to his words. Well, you're opening up a really interesting scenario, if I may speak for a moment. Um, one is the hydro whether or not hydroxychloroquine is helpful or not. Um, and, you know, there's uh, 
correlations that it has had it has helped and i don't really want to speak to to that or not um it the argument over the the like three or four different things of the whole world of medicine clearly gets people to forget about the fact that uh, uh secondary bacterial infections are treated quite well with antibiotics very high correlation of uh of proper use of existing medicines for existing symptoms and people usually more often than not getting better. Um, so there's that. There is the... And uh, antibiotics the, use started to collapse right before the pandemic in yeah. a lot of nations. There's the, Oddly. Uh, there's the, uh, uh, the uh, potential, potential misuse of remdesivir, intentional or not, which for people who are already sick, making them sicker, putting them to a state where many times they passed, they died, that creates a pathway for uh, to bring in new medicines, more a new generation of vaccines based upon a sense of urgency and based upon a sense of need. But the last thing there is uh, you mentioned where they looking for a pathway to test stuff uh, to get new types of medicine. And this is the and I'll make this quick. This is the warp speed story that too many people miss. Um, I'm not a, a fan of, for or against warp speed, okay? I think this whole thing is a disaster, right? Let's be clear. However, what warp speed forced was an acknowledgement that there were vaccines that will work. Now, without warp speed, everyone had already, look at all the papers, look at the news articles, look at the media. We, everyone was being seated. It was going to be 18 of 24 months of continuous COVID, 18 to 24 months before those vaccines were supposed to get here, at least according to Fauci, according to Bright, according to just about everyone. But everyone had to acknowledge that there's going to be some vaccines ready to go. And what will they do? They will protect people against COVID, whether they did or not. I'm not saying they did. I don't think they did anything. However, there was planning to be a window of anything goes. And who knows what was going to be happening during those 18, 24, 36 months? Who knows what people were going to be tested with unknowingly? We don't know. It's not as if if there was no warp speed, pandemic's over. No, something else was going to happen. There'd still be remdesivir. There'd still be a whole lot of other uh, uh, stuff going on. So just wanted to put that out there. Um, yeah, I think I think it's time also to point to J.J. Cooey's Yes. Uh, theory on data collection, which is that the pandemic needed to go on long enough for a lot of very valuable data collection to occur. And as JJ discovered, and I was in on a meeting, um, JJ, I, I guess I won't say who we were in the meeting with or exactly what was disclosed, uh, or, or can we say? I'm not sure what you're about to say, so I guess you should be careful for the moment. Uh, I'll just say universities. Yeah, we have to be careful with that. Okay. Well, let's just say there was a lot of genetic data collection going on. Uh, certainly, we know how that could occur. Um, and and just to give you guys some buffer, I've also heard that. I guarantee you, not from the same source. It's not. It's there's no one person who can be accused of leaking anything. No, all we have to do is make sure that we don't say where particular suits are being filed, but we can yes. definitely say that the testing swabs and the testing materials that were produced as a result of mandatory COVID testing um, can be qualified as remnants 
and remnants can be resold. So remnants from abortions can be resold. Remnants from surgeries can be resold. Remnants from uh, blood donors can be resold. Remnants from any, any potentially any material generated from any normal medical procedure can be resold as remnants if there's some research value to it. And there were many places in the United States in particular that I know of where pre-existing infrastructure in the form of bureaucracy and people and contracts were already in place to share any potential testing remnants generated by any testing of the student body. And, and for people, here, here's an explanation that a lot of people will understand, which is once you throw something in the trash, law enforcement can look through your trash, right? In fact, anybody can. Once you've thrown it away, anybody can just take your trash, right? But you know what? If you know that there's going to be something valuable thrown in the trash, you can have a routine for having it packaged up, maybe even labeled. And now you have personalized collected trash, which could include your genetic samples. Organized, possibly, at universities. And perhaps that is how you achieve alignment on getting universities to go along with, with vaccine mandates and making sure that everybody or almost everybody there is taking a vaccine. Uh, this is just the mention of the Ukrainian biolabs from the MIT Technology Review article. But now I'm going to talk about David Bazuki because uh, um, Steve, it's funny, Steve and I had talked about uh, Bazuki once before, but um, but he acted like he didn't know who, who he was, but what he said was um, Bazuki wound up uh, not only co-funding that trial with him, but also giving a hundred thousand dollars to the to Steve's foundation for the fluvoxamine trial, and and Steve is is asking why would he do that if he's a bad fellow? Fluvoxamine showed tremendous efficacy. If he wanted to lock down kids, fluvoxamine trial would be the last donation he would ever want to give. How do you explain that? Any thoughts? You 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 mean Prozac, right? You mean Prozac. It's it's not quite Prozac. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, Luvox, but we see the same things. And and let's face it, this trial that showed a hundred percent efficacy, um, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. And the University of Minnesota has had a lot of medical trial scandals over the past few years. Some uh, there was at least one scandal of like just totally fake image data, um, but the the bioethicist there uh, went once he started to push back against one of these, um, actually got ostracized by his peers, and he he just went to war with them. But there's been a whole bunch of uh, you know shady research scandal stuff at the University of Minnesota, which makes me wonder if um, Steve put that trial in the hands of the wrong person, whether or not I, I can't I don't know who designed the trial, so. You know, I wouldn't be able to say for sure. I don't think it was actually done at the University of Minnesota, but it may have been concocted there, you know, very possibly, given that, you know, we know over a year later um, he's working with uh, David Bulwer still. Um, I still think that this kind of goes back to something that was mentioned earlier, too, and it's kind of appropriate to, to, to stick it in here. And that is that a lot of these early treatment drugs, they don't have 
even a viable mechanistic explanation for why they think that this would help with a coronavirus infection. And everything, everything that we know about their pharmacology would suggest that they're mechanistically unrelated to the infection or to the immune response to it. So it is perplexing to me that people put so much effort and time into investigating how a antipsychotic or whatever you want to classify these drugs as would have any potential here. It is as random, quite frankly, as to suggest that psilocybin or LSD or, or anything else that was primarily understood as something that has psychological effects would be appropriate for a respiratory disease. Well, let's ask ourselves, what would a person want if they wanted to fund a trial that was a terrible trial that tanked hydroxychloroquine and would want Luvox to work or for people to think that Luvox works? What kind of a person? Oh, let's see. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. His company IPO'd for $38 billion in 2021. That's 38 billion. That's a three and an eight and a B in front of the Illion. Because Bazookis, whose company is Roadblocks? Bazookis, if I'm saying that right. Roadblocks. Rob Roblocks. Roadblocks. I know it's Roadblocks. My kids, Roblox, my kids have that game on okay you you Um, may want to think hard about that after we talk about this game this is like i think we are gonna not need to but i I, i'm scared go 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 get yeah this is like minecraft but with people being able to create the playing field and invite each other in so basically think internet basically think internet what what okay you know stop clear your mind when people get on the internet on average what is the data being passed around? What are the what, what proportion of the data packets are you are you thinking? Are, are you thinking? Oh no, no, I don't even have to tell you what to think, do I? Okay, um, so <laughs> there's a lot of content. If you just start looking Roblox controversy, uh, you're gonna run into the same things for the most part. You know, just think children at risk, children playing games with adults online. Oh my goodness. That's a video that was premiered in the Roblox game with this artist named Lil Nas X. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, giving a lap dance to Satan. That was premiered in this game for children that that literally 10 billion hours were spent playing this game by a hundred something million kids staying home from school. How do they play? How do they premiere it? Do you know? Because... I don't. I've watched my child play this game, and they. it does seem to be a way to allow, like, two kids on two different devices to play a game. Um, and I've never caught any kind of advertising or anything in between. Not saying that it isn't there, because I'm not watching all the time, but I'm wondering how they do it and how frequent it is. I've got well, to investigate. Jay, I wonder, like, um, among the things they can do in the game, can they go into rooms that perhaps would have a, literally, just like a digital screen set up, and your avatar can sit there and watch the premiere? I'm not sure if that, I know what you're talking about, because I've seen something like that in Fortnite, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's VR, you know, people were doing that in various, uh, like, because of COVID, you could watch a basketball game with a headset on 
So I'm sure. No, I just can tell you that their entire school, any kid that has a device has roadblocks and, and communicates with each other. They just recently asked me to put discord on their, on their phones. It's crazy. I, I can't even believe it. Um, so it, it is, it is an all out assault. If you think that, that guys like us are, are having to question what we should put on those kids' phones. Well, I mean, well I, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. questioning it. I will encourage people to do some internet searches. Know that in my notes, when I had done searches in 2020, when I first heard about this controversy, that most of even like the links that I had saved were no longer operational. So somebody goes back and scrubs or pressures to scrub a lot of things. But if, but if you just get on Twitter and you type Roblox pedophile, you will get dozens of these tweets a day. And here's one that I've put right up here. Somebody made their own meme cartoon for it. That's, you know, uh, I'm just going to encourage people to do their own research and decide what to think. And then I'm going to move on from here. $38 billion just bears, bears repeating. Um, so, okay. Uh, how did remdesivir become the standard of care? You know, the first trial that went on in China um, didn't go so well. So what happened? I guess there were some studies along the way. There was one where people got out of the hospital a little bit earlier if they took the medicine. You know, if you define enough endpoints, if you define enough endpoints, on average, you're going to get one that's statistically significant. Think about it that way. Yeah, you take colors out of a crayon box and say people who have red shirts will get cancer more than people who have blue shirts. And some proportion of those pairs, you have 64 crayons, you have about, about oh gosh, what do you have? 2000, uh, 2016, I think, different pairs of colors. And if one in 20 of those are statistically significant, you're going to have just over 100 statistically significant outcomes just pulling crayons out of a box. That, that's not meaningful at some point. And it, it happens to be that that in some of these studies, they just change the endpoints. This is the NIAID, just changing the primary outcome of the study in order to make it fit. Is the, That's the way I read it anyway. You can, you know, maybe you can argue a different interpretation. You know, I, I'm... I feel comfortable agreeing with the world's most published microbiologist at the top of the screen. But, you know, some people happen to think he's a quack. For those I, just I listening or can't see, it's Didier Raoult. And, and I'm probably not going to say that as well as you. <laughs> I also didn't say it right, I guarantee you. But uh, we're going to talk about him a little bit more in a moment. But, you know, first, uh, here's a pit stop. Um. Oh, wait, why did I put the slide in here? Okay, we've got, oh, 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 yeah. There was this other very obvious fraud. This one uh, published in May 22nd, 2020, was a supposed big data study from six continents uh, published by Surgisphere. And most people have heard of this at this point, but, it, you know, I'm going to say 99.99%. It was a total fabrication fraud. Um, it, it was, it was retracted. I, I told my wife on day one, we went for a walk. I was like, 
I like, I need to talk to you. We need to take a walk. Tell me I'm not crazy. And I told her the story, like I, I read the paper and I thought instantly, like, this is fake. This is totally fake. And, uh, and she's like, tell me why. <laughs> I, I think I convinced her after about half an hour, but, um, but it, the interesting thing about this is the, the head researcher, Mandeep Mera, uh, he was at, um, uh, is it called Brigham and, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is interesting. I've seen a lot of stories revolve around that hospital in particular, including medical kidnapping stories. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just, you know, just moving on from there. They happen to be conducting a remdesivir trial there. Isn't that the hospital that uh, that um, is Harvard's hospital? And it's also the hospital that uh, Walensky worked at yes. and that. Uh, well, they all almost a lot of them work there. In fact. And and what's her name? Like Liana Wong. Is that her name? Liana Wen. Yeah. Liana Wen. Thank you. Liana Wynn also worked there. Yes. Yeah, There's it's part of the lot. same. It's part of the same like Harvard Medical School network that. Also Even crazier is that Walensky, the guy who is the the Surgeon General. What's his name again? Um, Murthy. Yeah, yeah, Vivek Murthy. They all worked on AIDS while they were there. They raised money for it. They mm. did research on it. They were assigned to that department. Just, just out there. Very interesting. Well, that's why I included this slide. And then, uh, oh, 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 um, who, who is the largest shareholder in Gilead? Well, it's BlackRock. And we've seen a whole lot of them hmm. during the pandemic, buying homes, um, sitting in castles in high mountains with fingers at the corner of their mouths. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, Ed Dowd, by the way, Ed Dowd worked at BlackRock. Uh, okay, so what, what was this one about? In the middle here, I'm forgetting when I was inserting some of these slides for, so let's just see. And what's Ed Dowd's position again? What, what does he talk about? He was, he was a, oh, um, what does he talk about? He talks about the insurance data. And the insurance data is showing what? That um, like a whole bunch more young adults have died since the vaccines rolled out. Exactly. There you go. So um, let's see, under the direction of the WHO, remdesivir is being tested as an alternative treatment to COVID-19. Currently, COVID-19 is treated with, let's see, da, 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 da. nine members of the panel tasked with determining acceptable COVID-19 treatments have disclosed financial ties to Gilead, the manufacturer of remdesivir. Okay, this is what this is about. Pence, the vice president, Pence, uh, had a a uh, treatment guidelines panel, I think it was called, COVID treatment guidelines panel with 55 members. Seems like too many to me, but maybe maybe you, you need a lot of people. Um, More guidelines, the better, I guess. So there were nine who disclosed ties to Gilead out of 55. And what this article says is actually they found seven more. <laughs> there were seven who didn't disclose financial ties to Gilead, including two of the three co-chairs of the committee. That's at least according to this article. But I'm going to tell you something that I found personally. Oh, and, and they go on to name names, too. So, you know, just just in case people want to take note or check things. But I'm going to tell you what I found when I was uh, researching that that same um panel myself back in October of 2020, 
was, okay, there were nine originally on the website, but interestingly, two of them withdrew their affiliations to Gilead sometime in 2020. They just, you know, their affiliations to Gilead just disappeared from the website. And that was Rajesh Gandhi, originally reported being on the advisory board for Gilead Sciences, later reported just being on the advisory board for Merck, and Pablo Tabas. Now, this one's interesting. Gilead and Innovio Pharmaceuticals. And then later on, he just reports Innovio Pharmaceuticals. Now, why would it be that out of those 16 people, nine of them would hesitate to disclose financial relationships with Gilead? You know the answer to that. Question is, did they know what the plan was going to be? But what at least some of them were nervous about it. What do you think, uh, Jay? I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't have a good estimation of these people that we're talking about here. They're farther away from my central understanding and model of all the people that are participating. But um, they could have been very, very clear. I mean, these are all people that are on the business end of this operation and the business end of this operation could have been very brass tacks about it and just said, this is the product we're going to push. And how many people knew that it wouldn't work? I bet very few of these people had any concept of how it worked or why it might or might not work. Or even the fact that any data that they had, as you and many others have pointed out, was based on early prophylactic use and not about late treatment. And so even that level of knowledge and understanding wasn't really present in the chain of command here, I don't think so. That's an interesting thought. It would be interesting to go through the list and see how many of these people are MBAs and how many are biochemists or or biologists of any sort, right? You know yeah, who I, showed some surprise that it was working? Was John C. Martin. And how I remember hearing you say that. He, uh, he was interviewed in May 2020 on a relatively unknown podcast so it's just audio only and uh he didn't say remdesivir wasn't going to work but he was told that there were studies from fauci that it was looking promising and his response was i look forward to seeing the data <laughs> which is corporate speak for i don't believe you right that's corporate speak. you don't say wow i expected that I knew all that work was going to pay off. He was like, huh, well, I look forward to seeing it. And he was very gentlemanly about it. And he dies by tripping on a sidewalk in Palo Alto, California on end of March of 2021. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. Now, he was no longer the CEO. He resigned in 2016. But still, you know, um, I... I, I know that Gilead's as dirty as fire trucks, but uh, um, you know uh, I I haven't really felt that the the super dark vibe from what I've seen out of his work. Uh, but anyways, just putting that one out there, and well, so in these pies they should have disclosed their relationships, uh, what they've known. They didn't have to know that it was or wasn't working or or why, but they should have disclosed it. That means that they're hiding something. Well, I had an opinion in May of 2020. I just want to share what my opinion was. I, I at least had a question. I, 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 
think anyone will serve time for statistical murder? That was my question in, on May 18th, 2020. Uh, just in case Steve, just in case Steve is watching, because when I mentioned to him that I in, in late last year that I'd been doing two and a half years of research on this, he he gave a loud guffaw. Well, this is still it hasn't ended, Matt, because um, what it we're hasn't. talking about here is remdesivir, right? Which may seem in 2020. First of all, it's still the standard of care. It's still being used. There's still people who it's being prescribed to every day. Some live and some don't. However, uh, a uh, if someone were to engage, and if I can in, just point, can I just emphasize what Mark is saying here that they're being given remdesivir, and the doctors who are admi administering it do not have remdesivir's potential side effects on a list of watch out for this shit. Right. If this happens, take them off remdesivir. There's nothing like that happening. Go ahead, Mark. Well, there, there's that. Of course, there's incentive, financial incentives. There was all of that, which is good debate. But, okay, um, we have endless debates right now over vaccine safety, over whether or not the mRNA vaccine worked. And that conversation cannot be had without first agreeing that the actual risk factor of coronavirus is not what it's portrayed to be. Hence, Ian Copeland cleans up in his uh, chats on Twitter, because everyone starts off with, well, the vaccine's a problem. And he never, Ian Copeland says, doesn't, doesn't say that that's not true, but he always, he is building upon a mountain of data that ignores hospital protocols, it ignores no antibiotics, it ignores statistical manipulation about flu deaths, it ignores remdesivir. So by, by always being encouraged to spend day after day after day and dollar after dollar on vaccine safety, it's an endless argument that will never go anywhere. And this is the, this is why people don't want to talk about it. This is why I suspect when, Mal when Malone had this, uh, you know, we're going to get all the lawyers together and talk about and get lawsuits for vaccine injuries. Anyone that wanted to talk about remdesivir is kicked out. You are not allowed in here. Get out of here. Go over there. Wait, wait, I, I don't know about this story. Wait. No, George Webb was kicked out. Oh, was this was this yeah. this was why George Webb was kicked out? Interesting. Yeah, he wanted he had two questions, domain and remdesivir. Okay. And they they uh, suggested that he was gonna uh, be uh, cause trouble. He was gonna cause trouble. He was gonna ask the questions which needed to be asked. But this is why we are stuck in this endless quagmire. I appreciate the fact that people are engaging about trying to understand the benefits and the risks and the pros and the cons of all the different treatments. However, it will never go anywhere until we can agree upon the actual risk of whatever this agent was in the, in the first place. And the more well, we're encouraged I, not I, to have I that, hope, the more we are stuck in the mud. I hope that some people watch this and this is enough. What, what I feel like I've done in the middle of this slideshow is built a tapestry mm, of yeah. A Very lot good. of a lot of facts that seem to to have the same polarity, I guess, is the way that I'm going to put it. And here's one of those. It's kind of a follow the money fact. When I noticed that Hungary had a weird policy on hydroxychloroquine, they stopped exports, but they also weren't using it to treat COVID, at least not much, um, not much at all, if at all. And I noticed uh, that when I went into uh, Gilead's financial reports, they really pumped up the money in 2019 to Hungary. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to be able to read Klingon in order to you know uh, you, you can get this translated. But, you know, twenty three and a half million, you can see that number near the bottom right hand corner uh, for 2019. And um, and then in 2020, back down to ordinary levels, uh, you know, two, three million dollars a year or something like that. So, yeah, um, you, you have to use the Wayback Machine to get the the older data, though. So. Middle of the year, 2020, South Korea is one of those nations that they chose the chloroquines. They chose the chloroquines early, but somehow in June, they decided that hydroxychloroquine didn't work and that they would give emergency approval to remdesivir. Now, why would they make such a decision? After all, South Korea actually had very, very few cases a very brief outbreak, and then almost no deaths at all. So mm. what happened there? And I'm just going to suggest that the reason I call it the pandemonium and the reason I call it World War E is because this is about economics and South Korea pretty much has to play ball with whatever the United States does. But it is worth you know looking around. We've looked at Hungary. We've looked at South Korea. It's worth looking around to a number of nations to see what's going on. And here's Uganda. Oh, and somehow I did, oop, I did not uh, get something out of the way there. And sorry about that. But I'm, I'll, I'll just mention what's going on here with Uganda. Uganda was using hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, vitamins from day one as the standard of care through almost the end of July and had zero deaths, zero COVID deaths. And then suddenly the World Bank came and gave them a whole bunch of money. Like a billion dollars. Billion dollars. That's That's got to go a long way in Uganda. And then suddenly, suddenly, two days later, Uganda had its first death from COVID. And they're using remdesivir at some number of hundred dollars a dose. And the case fatality rate goes from zero to almost 10% before it comes back down again. And after it was mid-October when they started using remdesivir, and you can see the bottom right-hand corner, that's what the case chart looks like. And by the way, that's Southern Hemisphere, so that's summer, not winter. So look around the world. Look at both the hydroxychloroquine and the remdesivir stories in a few countries. Track it down. Find the ones that you need to think about. But you know what? Let's move now to the WHO trials because there are some interesting stories right here. Now, they tested in various of these, you know, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir. Oh, look, patients who are already receiving remdesivir can still be recruited into the recovery recovery trial for other medicines. I wonder if anybody ever went back and rechopped the data to take a look at whether or not the arms were equal and, and what it showed about remdesivir. I, I don't know. I don't think I've read that. But, um, okay, WHO says remdesivir flunks. Huh. Okay, so... And what was the date of that announcement? Um, oh, October, it was... Uh, oh, October of 2000? Uh, 
So, oh, oh, this is this is actually April twenty, uh, April twenty third, twenty twenty. This is oh, the story here was oh, yeah. that actually the WHO put it up on its website, leaked yep. preliminary reports, mm-hmm. and then scrubbed them from the website, and then their shares tumbled. So this yep. is late April twenty twenty. Yep, they had closed trading for a they had closed trading for an afternoon. So, what's your interpretation? Anybody? I think the interpretation is uh, some some truth leaked out via a screenshot, and uh, they needed to clear it up. And then the, the following day, another study leaked out of the University of Chicago that showed that uh, uh, compassionate care was looking slightly optimistic, and the shares went back up. See, okay. And, and that story from the next day, that completes things for me, because uh, when, I, when I put this in the slideshow, I was like, you know what this is? This is a dump and pump. Leak the bad data so you can buy the shares. It, it could have been that too. It could have been arranged for that. I would love to see who traded who traded Gilead those two days. And oh, and, and maybe I should point out uh, the name uh, Hayden because we're going to see that name again. Uh, let's see what Frederick Hayden mm. of the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He's the one who um, conducted the study in China. And we're going to see his name come up again in a moment. But uh, oh, effect of hydroxychloroquine in hospitalized patients. Okay, this is Pete Horby's study, also in, you know one of the WHO trials. But there's something very, very interesting when we. I mean, you know, it's interesting first of all that you know it's like seven days after symptoms, so you're not really testing an antiviral very well. Correct. But it gets a little bit interesting when you look at the metadata on that document. Frederick Hayden. Hmm. Why is the guy running the remdesivir trial in China in the metadata of the hydroxychloroquine report for the WHO? Can't think of a reason. Somebody I talked to just decided, hey, I'm just going to write an email. I'm just going to ask Peter Horby. Can you clarify what role he played? <laughs> for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to share who that was, but um, he was not involved in oh. any way. Don't know why he appears in the metadata, Peter. Don't know why. I'm not going to go look. <laughs> Whose computer says Hayden in it? Yeah. It's interesting. He didn't push back and say, you must be wrong. Like that's the kind of thing you would think he would be scratching his head over instead of just moving on from. Yeah. Like, let me figure this out. Right. You know, does, does he not care about what the the metadata means? He's a scientist, right? I mean, like metadata is a lot of scientific data. You're, you're, you know, you're investigating, you're analyzing like this, well, and wouldn't it potentially suggest a data integrity issue? Like who's using that computer? Uh, there's a lot of questions. Or, or, or even the way that it will look to the public. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, now we're getting into the surveys. Oh, that's right. That's right. I started to put in the surveys here. Though maybe, maybe this one was... Um, for a different reason first understand the two months late for application. Oh yeah. Okay. So notice that even though we have the WHO um, testing hydroxychloroquine, like I said, it was a late treatment study. It was also three times the dose that most people around the world were using, 
But this article in particular out of Francois uh, walks through the fact that um, once Didier Riel started successfully treating people, and he treated like 4,000 people by May, right? And the WHO and other people in France are telling him, oh, we're going to use your protocol. Wasn't it also azithromycin in his paper, though? It was in the title, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And he wasn't using anything as an endpoint except for the PCR positivity, if I understand it right. I remember right. Oh, at the very beginning. That was his study in uh, at the end of February. That was like February 26th. But later on, he's I mean, he published lots and lots of reports on his data. So he's published on deaths, hospitalization, all that stuff. What is but Francois? It's like the New York Post, maybe. No, it, it, it's. I think it's considered a step uh, ahead of New York Post in journalism, but you know, it's it's definitely not left wing. I okay. guess pe people are going to refer to it as right wing. I guess it would it would be called right of center. Um, um, one interesting thing they about had it, they had the June twenty third, twenty twenty one interview with uh, Adam Gartner. Um, about how ivermectin is just kick-ass. Um, <laughs> and he became the he became a future director of former feds. So yeah. Well, the, the author of this one right here, I've been in contact with Xavier uh Azelbear. Mm -hmm. He is a mathematician and a biologist. So it, it's interesting that the editor of this newspaper is a mathematician and biologist. I think it enabled this particular publication to kind of be all over the pandemic. Hmm. They had a lot of important stories, especially in 2020 as things were getting going. Um, but they covered, um, you know, bro pretty well. Right. Um, but you know, the, it, basically this story is about the fact that rule was gaslighted by multiple different study authors saying, yeah, I'm going to use your protocol. <laughs> and then they changed the protocol completely like early to late treatment, moderate versus high dose, like everything that they could do, uh, you know, in conjunction with a macrolide or alone, right? I mean, like in every way they could, they just gaslighted him. But, you know, it, it, it got worse and worse for him. Um, in particular, uh, he had to testify uh, to um, to the parliament about the fact that, and, and this guy got arrested. There was a guy who called him up and threatened his life called him up for it, from Nantes, a, a guy, you know, medical doctor. Oh, he's not just a medical doctor. He's the medical doctor that have, out of all the doctors and scientists in France, if I understand this correctly, had received the most money from Gilead. That guy calls the world's most well-published microbiologist and threatens to kill him. Just another story. Just throwing that one out there. So they, yeah, you know, that's insult to injury. They don't use your protocol and they tell you they're going to kill you. I mean, that's just mean. That's just mean. Uh, I, I did like, <laughs> I did like the fact that Raul said, you know what, um, this is all about the U.S.'s civil war. And I don't think that that's a perfect description, but it is true that there are forces that are meeting each other here, right? I mean, he, he recognizes that forces are extending to him to put pressure on him, but that that it seems like 
whatever's going on, it's centering around the dollar or control of U.S. politics. That and and I, I'm kind of in that sphere, even if I don't want to say I can perfectly describe it. Anybody? I I I, I generally agree with that statement. It does. It is about the U.S. Civil War to some extent. To some extent, I don't. My opinion, whatever it's worth, probably not worth much, but I do not believe everyone was on board using remdesivir, using it the way it was improperly, um, or all the same protocols. I don't believe it was just government versus people. I don't think that's the wrong. That's, my belief is that's the wrong interpretation. I, I suspect that it was known that like uh, uh, like a, uh, a container ship heading towards an iceberg and wasn't going to this wasn't going to stop. Uh, but I think different people had wanted to get something different out of it uh, and they wanted to play things in different ways. So there was definitely internal battles. Um, uh, and uh, I suspect and not a, not a lot of people don't agree with this viewpoint, though, that uh, the uh, improper use of some of this medicine was allowed to happen uh, to knock out a few hundred thousand people. Uh, and to uh, crush what appeared to be uh, a, a rising sense of, uh, of, of, of populism within the United States. Uh, you can see a really hard turn towards everything coronavirus uh, starting a day and a half after uh, the, the Trump election victory. It seemed to be in 2016. Um, or... Yeah. Or here's an alternative. It's an opinion, though. It's just a, it's just a framework that I work with. Yeah. Maybe it's to make it so bad that the moderate populists who would not participate in an uprising would unite in large numbers. I was, I was going to say, it's funny how it looks like Mark. The opposite is what's occurred. There's been a tremendous, and because not just moderates and uh, populists uh, or pre-existing populists. I'm I'm a liberal, uh, and a lot of people I've known uh, from across the spectrum have more or less been "quote unquote" woken up to the idea that there is something to think about there. So it's interesting that if that was some kind of intention, it doesn't seem to have worked. <laughs> or both sides could believe that they're going to get what they want out of it, right? The side that wants to crush the populace could could get what they want out of it, and the side that wants to get the populists to form a new nation essentially like a new foundation a new bedrock i don't know i'm just i'm and, well, and looking at things now opinion if, either way if the current therapies are correlated with uh injuries mm -hmm. and fatalities uh if they are uh they're not targeting generally the the populist population uh at least within the united states so i mean that but maybe it was unexpected that things would have been going on as long as they have. I don't know. I mean, you know, at some point we have to start throwing possibilities out there to explain it so that we can at least try to disprove ourselves. Right. So I could be wrong, but you know, it's just, it's a, some general ideas that I'm working with and I'm, and I'm actively trying to prove myself wrong to figure out, okay, so what's a more correct explanation. Uh, but yeah, Ian, uh, Liam, excuse me, Liam just uh, said it. Well, it seems to, in some ways it seems to have backfired, but, uh, we'll see. I, I, sorry about my phone, guys. I, I just wanted to throw out my remdesivir theory, which was the chimeric mutator protein. 
which is you throw in a mutator protein like AIDS, uh, HIV had this, this unending series of mutants, right? And they haven't been able to vaccinate for it or come up with a decent therapeutic. If you do the same thing with remdesivir with patients and you have them rebreathing through the ventilators like Callahan set up, they create mutants. Nine times out of 10, you don't make the, the protein. The, the uh, RNA polymerase is blocked. But in 10% of the cases, you actually change the nucleosides and you create a new mutant. That's how we got beta. That's how we got the different variants, potentially. That's how we finally got delta. And you basically direct evolution away from existing known therapies toward a new novel virus. You actually direct the evolution toward your money, money pit. Uh, you make the people go like Rockefeller toward your bridge that goes over the bridge that takes your oil to market. You create a monopoly for a new and novel thing with remdesivir. That's why I see remdesivir continually showing up over and over, seemingly to do nothing other than create mutants. By the way, um, uh, our friend from Cove Exit is here to, to mention that uh, Francois has little to do with the previous one. Name was bought by um, Azelbear, uh, but he started a new online publication, a uh, free speech platform. So um, anyhow, just just to, just cool. to mention that, um, I do appreciate that he has a, a math and science background, though. Um, so what I've just thrown up on the screen are studies for remdesivir. And you'll notice uh, early treatment studies work better than late treatment studies. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if if it stops viral replication, if given early, though you may have, I don't know, renal failure as a result. Um, but, you know, the fact that early treatment works better than late and late treatment, I mean, that 11%, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that could be nothing. Uh, you, you could have one you know, fudge study in there that, that causes all of that result. Wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. I'm not saying that it is. Um, but anyway, I'm just, I'm looking at this and, and I'm looking at, you know, the mortality. Wow. You know, those mortality numbers look so good. Is that too good to be true? Well, these studies are listed in the order that they were published. I want to point that out. And that when we look at the studies that were published after the early going, after the Garibaldi study, suddenly they have completely mixed mortality results and they're all over the place. There's no consistency except that, you know what? The studies that are done in Western nations with large pharma complexes seem to go a little bit better. Mm -hmm. It's almost like there's an inverse proximity relationship to somebody's gun. I don't know. This somebody's the, dollar. These are the results I would have expected. There's too many papers that find ways to show that early use of the product has benefits and remdesivir, you know, there's, it has multiple potential uses, but one, uh, something I think we, we believe uh, that it was designed for was for the battlefield <clears throat> to protect the warfighter against um, uh, exposure to uh, synthetic, you know, virus-like particles whether he be or she be attacked by them or possibly even involved in the distribution of them. It just shuts your body's processing of these particles down wholesale. 
it's not something that you want to be taking, you know, uh, you know, every day. Uh, like Early treatment. You better sell it for Early less than a $1,000 dose. But how many people are going to take something like this vir virtually prophylactically? It's unheard of. So late treatment, this is because I just said, this is not something you want to take very often. It really stresses the body. Now, if you were just hit with something really nasty, well, it sure is better than dying. However, uh, this is not something that you take when you're sick. So if people are sick, almost regardless of what they're sick of, you start hitting them up with remdesivir, they're going to get sicker. It's not something you need to take. And matter of fact, that's the time your body's communication needs to be in order, in order to heal. So it only gets worse. So this is the, this is the fine little detail. I used to say remdesivir is poison. I wish I didn't because I was wrong. It's a tool to use in a specific situation. So was a mistake made to use remdesivir in a situation where it shouldn't have been used because it at that appears to be correlated with bad outcomes? And was that intentional or was that just a horrible accident? We need to know that and that needs to stop happening. The, and that, that's a reasonable hypothesis. But let's uh, let's take a look at the rest of the studies, because it, I found it very interesting that things that you would expect to correlate with lower death didn't like mechanical ventilation. Um, more people had to be mechanically ventilated who had been put on room desivere. Uh, and if the endpoint was getting in the ICU, you would think going to the ICU would be correlated with whether or not you died after you take room desivere, but they don't seem to. Now, there's not as many studies there, but okay, hospitalization. Well, there's no improvement there either. No improvement for hospitalization or ICU visits or mechanical ventilation, but there is improvement for death. Well, okay, let's, let's go a little further. Viral clearance, no improvement. But you know what? When they started rolling out remdesivir, at least in Minnesota, we can see that the proportion of people who are dying, who died from acute kidney injury, renal failure, is is a very high. It's well, it's it's the known side effect that we worry about with remdesivir, and it is it just happens to be one of the highest comorbidities for COVID, mm -hmm. and is that simply because we used it as treatment, we or that we used remdesivir as treatment, but. Yeah, the hospital data, it looks like it. Now, where we're going next, uh, George. George, I'm going to quiz you. See if you can name this person out loud the moment you see her. You ready? Okay. Who is it? Um, I can't. It's very small. Tara O'Toole, I can't see. I don't it's remember her name. Oh, this is terrible. I knew it like four hours ago. <laughs> This is uh, the woman at uh, UAB who headed the uh, remdesivir studies. What's her name? I can't read it either. I don't think it's on here, and I've forgotten it. Oh, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> um, well, she doesn't look familiar to me. I've... <clears throat> I, I met the, pres the president, and I met all these top PhDs, and they had this big day for you know intellectual property over there at Southern Research at UAB. And it, there's a lot of tension going on here because somebody feels like they took all of the Alabama, Birmingham PhD work product and privatized it through Southern Research. And they got robbed, you know, and 
Michael Callahan being the key guy, and now they're trying to hold on to their IP. That I can tell you right from the president's office is going on right now. And that's where they do their high throughput screening. This is why I say high throughput screening sometimes is, you know, just five a robot testing 500 different things in their library. Their library has 26,000 compounds. So sometimes you just test the crap out of stuff and see what works, see where you get signal. And that's why I think they were so important with the Gilead drugs, the Gilead uh, HIV, the Gilead Hep C, and the Gilead uh, Remdesivir. But again, like Mark is saying, everybody, JJ Cooley, you could do great in the well plate, but that doesn't mean you're going to do well in the mouse. It doesn't mean you're going to do well in the monkey. It doesn't mean you're going to do well in the human. I got her name, Dr. Jean or Jean Morazzo. Ah, uh, Morazzo, that's right. Thank you. Wow, I wish I had a Liam to give me answers like that. That's awesome, Liam. Yeah. Um, interesting uh, bit of trivia. Um, my wife was, if we hadn't moved to Dallas, she was going to go to work for Southern Research Institute going, uh, doing high throughput nanopore sequencing. <laughs> um, I, I actually met the guy who did the nanopore for the micro uh, tubulin or whatever it's called or micro, micro, micro something. But it, it's using the actual pore that uh, cells use and they use it to read the ATG uh sequence that's the nanopore guy he's actually there at uh, he invented it at uab yeah my wife may have worked with him uh, while she was getting her phd um anyhow um moving forward I, you know I, I brought this up because she was in the middle of 2020 she was preaching against hydroxychloroquine right like getting on the news and i i wrote this post to tell my friends you know you like Look at look at what the relationship is here, right? So, um, why is Alabama the best place to get away with murder? It's called um, Presidential Directive six 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 six. No, three 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 three. No, no, all the DNA is the same, and nobody has dental records. <laughs> oh, that's the funny one. Well, actually, I wanted to tell you that JFK signed the. Um, Operation Mongoose or whatever it was. Uh, I think it's presidential record. Um, it's it's like one two three three three, but it's not. I can't remember what it is now. But it's it's the record about the federal government can go in to the University of Alabama Birmingham to ensure the safety of the civil rights of the students. It's the George Washington in the in the doorway of the UAB. Um, not George and, Washington. Uh Oh, oh, I mean, uh, George Wallace, George Wallace, George Wallace, George Wallace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that, that presidential directive is now what enables the Alabama, Birmingham national guard mm -hmm. to, to do operations outside of Alabama, right there from the, uh, airline ba uh, base in, in UAB. So Southern research is more than just Southern research. I think they can run actual covert operations and spraying operations, Zika type spraying or whatever operations, mm -hmm. In the Latin American, uh, there are a whole bunch of C-130s there, uh, or in the KC-135 tankers that can be retrofitted for spraying. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I'll get the uh, presidential directive here in a minute. It Could it be Executive Order 11111? Yeah, that's it. 11111. Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah, are you serious? Yeah, I, I found I found it. It looks to be, uh, it matches all the details that George just uh, laid out. Oh, that's so QAnon. Yeah. 
read that order, though. It allows the National Guard, which normally capacity comitatus is not allowed to leave state lines. It allows them to do operations outside of, I can send a National Guard from Massachusetts into Alabama to, to guarantee the right of the student to go to the UAB. And now yeah. I can use that against capacity comitatus. But more importantly, I can send a C-130, a DynCorp C-130, and I can spray some kind of paraquat or whatever and then do sample collection. I can send Michael Callahan down there and I can collect samples. So it, it puts them in the driver's seat or in the pilot seat, I should say, for the virus vaccine game for testing because they have this uh, presidential authorization, the Alabama National Guard, Air National Guard. Well, one, one more little piece of trivia. Um, and and I, I don't know if for sure we can answer this together, but I bet we can. So some of remdesivir, I don't know why remdesivir was developed in multiple locations, but it was developed at UAB. It was developed at UNC Chapel Hill, which is where Ralph Barrick is, of course. And was it also developed at uh, University of Washington? I know it was tested at UNC a lot. Um, uh, Ralph Barrick's involved in testing a lot of stuff. I don't know if it was at University of Washington. I know UAB, University of Alabama, was the one that I've heard is the, uh, the place where it was developed. Um, well, uh, one Barrick, of, uh, that executive order one, 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 I guess there has to be one. <laughs> it just seems yeah. too silly. It, it is silly. But what, what I'm saying is if you were going to try to write into somebody's genome, you would be best to mimic genes or, or mechanisms, human mechanisms that already do that. When do we know that happens? Well, when, when the cell makes protein or when the cell divides, when does that happen? Well, when there's RNA polymerase uh, around, when there's DNA polymerase around, when there's uh, reverse transcriptase around. And so you just basically copy those kind of molecules. And if you look at remdesivir, it's actually a, a form of ATP. The ATP molecule is the energy molecule, obviously, for citric acid cycle for our bodies. So now I can patent things that go in the citric acid cycle for the energy cycle oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria. But now also ATP is the side chain on the nucleotides and nucleosides, right? In all of my DNA. So I can hang something off of the ATP and make it proprietary and make it uh, patentable. And they did this with uh, um, um, uridine. The uridine, uh, pseudouridine replaced uh, uracil as a nucleoside in the RNA. It's patentable when you put in your own nucleotide, your own nucleoside. Right. Uh, just doing something artificial to make it patentable. Um, yeah, this is, this is going to be so dangerous over the next few years if this is what we're experimenting with. Oh, Rumsfeld um, put together two amino acids. Rumsfeld put together two <laughs> acids at Searle and created uh, NutraSweet and patented it. Two natural amino acids slapped together, created NutraSweet, a new uh, product. Oh, and uh, you just had a picture of Ralph Berica. Um, I wanted to highlight something from a paper of his from uh, June 2017. Okay, now I think that the, uh, the uh, first of all, Beric should have known what was going on. 
I think I wish he had spoke out against it. He should. He's responsible for not speaking out strongly against this stuff in early 2020. Doesn't get a pass for that. Uh, however, in a 2017 paper, he uh, talking about testing GS5734 remdesivir. Okay. The data suggested that reductions in viral load after peak lung titers were achieved, uh, titers were achieved, were insufficient to improve outcomes after the immunopathological phase of the disease has been initiated. In 2017 papers, he and other people had already documented that if you're using remdesivir late, not going to help you. This was known. And how were these critical statements? in abstracts and summaries of remdesivir testing been overlooked? And how is it that not one person who seems to be, you know, prancing around right now saying, let's blame it all on Barrick, pick up on the fact that they documented that this was not going to work after initial uh, exposure. And that's what I've said earlier. (coughs) This was developed for the warfighter, for all of these synthetic agents protection and potentially having a role in protecting them while doing distribution. This was known. So the remdesivir angle is, and, and and did the domain product have any ability? Did it, anything in there say that, you know, does it measure, you know, uh, time that it should be used? Or is it just doing molecular analysis? Like, oh, this is one piece of, this is one Lego and this is another Lego. Do they fit or do they not fit? Did it factor any of that in? Because if it didn't, then it was uh, negligent, intentionally so. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Barrick's picture here because this brings up that there was this knowledge out there already. And again, instead of talking about this stuff, we're saying DOD bad. And um, let's talk about let's let's see let's have another two thousand dollar plate fundraiser for the Vaccine Safety Research Institute based upon data which we're not going to dig into. This is more than dollars, Mark. Oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. You know what? Yeah, sorry. This is where the duality model that we started talking about very near the beginning of this matters. You know, is this intentional? Is it negligence? Is it accidental? Whatever, right? Because our next few slides, <clears throat> you know, I said, uh, you know, ash conformity meets uh, AB testing. We have con- throughout 2020, I've never seen this before or since to this degree, this level. There's constant polling of what people think about these drugs. Right, this is a fierce pharma. 42% of those polled about Gilead said they warmed to the remdesivir maker. That's in August 10th of 2020. It didn't look anything like that earlier in the year. Let's take a look at some more studies. On May 7th, 2020, um, the majority of global physicians use hydroxychloroquine. That's just five months earlier in a large survey in, across many countries, right? Um, what else do we have? Let's see, uh, uh, here's a poll. <clears throat> a verdict has conducted a poll to assess which is currently the most promising therapeutic drug or class for COVID-19. Analysis of the poll results show that remdesivir either alone or in combination without uh, drugs is considered the most promising drug for or class for COVID-19 as voted by 22% of the respondents. This is October. So we've gone October, May, October. We're looking back and forth. 
you know, late later in the year, remdesivir, earlier in the year, hydroxychloroquine. Um, but by later in the year, uh, you know, you only have like 5% of respondents voting for other antivirals and that's it. Like hydroxychloroquine had just been beaten down at that point, but the studies looked better and better as the year went on. All the, all the crap studies were, were earlier in the year. Let's see, is this one more? No, this is just China approves chloroquine and kicks um, remdesivir to the curb. So they did exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite plan. And we lose George and Mark while I was reading. Am I that bad at reading? They got him. It was pretty brutal indeed. But that's <laughs> right. I don't think that's why you lost him. We have been going uh, for over two hours. I do have another 25 slides left. Maybe uh, maybe I'll push through them uh, a little bit more quickly. I think so. Uh, just to clarify, Mark looks like he might be back. I'm going to guess George's phone overheated again. Yeah, my, yeah. Uh, my estimation. Um, so Trump gets experimental drug at curbing severe illness. So between these two times, May and October, when the public opinion shifted, oh, look at who we have. David Bulware started advising the president in May of 2020. The president stopped using hydroxychloroquine and started using Regeneron. And David Bulware said, I'm not surprised that his doctors are using Regeneron, <clears throat> but also, also he used remdesivir at the military hospital. So... So wait, sorry to clarify, Trump himself received remdesivir? Yes, he did. Earlier in the year, he was using hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis. But then uh, he stopped at some point. Um, David Bulware, I, I think, you know, was one of, or maybe his own doctor, but uh, Bulware was advising as of, I think, sometime in May. And um, it's funny, I was actually getting online and seeing if I could poke at him and ask him questions and, and see if I could just just kind of needle a message to him in the middle of 2020. And uh, after I'd done that for a few days, he got in an interview and complained about Russian trolls. <laughs> and I think he might've actually been talking about me. <laughs> um, anyhow, I, I just, you know, here, here's one more. Gilead rebranded remdesivir as Covafor in India. Just to make it sound like it was like a new COVID drug, like specific to COVID. You should take this one because it's, that's what it's for. It's COVA for. Or like Fabiflu better. Fabiflu <laughs> sounds sound really safe and effective. Uh, Sexiflu? <laughs> okay, wait. I I I really want to make sure this is correct because I think there's been contention as to whether the R word that Trump received. It's my understanding he only received one of the two, and that it was Regeneron, not Remdesivir. Is that how how confident are you? No, 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 no. I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I've I've read this multiple times. Okay, okay. I think he received both. Or, you know what, um, frankly, uh, I, I don't – these are reports, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Given what we've seen, let's just say 
everything here is a report. Yep. Yeah. Understood. Yep. It's it's uh, it's not clear. I've seen it both ways. Um, the the confusion of the name lends itself, whether it was intentional or not, to, for to be confused. Mm. Um, I, I I'm I'm not sure what 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 he really sees. I suspect it was just from severe, but again, I too am just reading reports, so who knows. So, uh, you know, I mentioned that there were a whole bunch of uh, bad hydroxychloroquine studies. I mean, uh, Regeneron, this... just Regeneron, not Remdesivir. I'm sorry. I think he just got – I'm sorry to cut you off, Matt. That's I apologize. Right. CNN does say that he got got both. CNN says that he was given a five-day course of Remdesivir that started on um, October 4th, 2020. And then it mentions that this became the first therapy drug issued an emergency use authorization. But they do report he was given Regeneron, Remdesivir, Dexamethasone, supplemental oxygen, zinc, vitamin D, famotidine, melatonin, and daily aspirin. Interesting. And nano silver. And nano silver, I'm sure. Indeed. You forgot about the nano silver. Yeah, nano silver, which is not to be confused with with small denomination coins from pre nineteen sixty four. Ditaz on Rumble just said, "Let's base it on which drug has more Instagram followers." Face palm. I thought that was a a, a valid criticism. Um, well, I'm just kind of going through here, showing that you know, even in the media, like in October, uh, even like you know. Even Ars Technica and Science are starting to go, you know, like this, this Remdesivir story is kind of a head-scratcher. Um. Mark's, Mark's screen is still not visible. I don't know if he's got an image available or not. That's all right. I'm kind of pushing through a little bit faster at this point. But you know what? Um, here's one that we've already discussed that we discussed at the beginning while Mark was still here, or uh, while both um, uh, Mark and George were still here. Um, yeah, this is all the way, this is late 2019. We've got this domain program. And then uh, Pfizer agrees to manufacture Gilead's coronavirus drug remdesivir. And, you know, I, I threw this in here just because I found this and I just thought it was interesting. You know, and, and Pfizer does have just an amazing distribution network. We know that much. But, um, uh, but you know what? Um Oh, Mark, I got this one from you. You know what this is? What does this represent? I see a stock chart. Yeah. I see stocks going up in uh, November 2019. Is that correct? 22. Uh, 2022. I don't know what we are looking at here. Okay. I got this observation from you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Was that uh, election time, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, when when it became clear that uh, the Republicans weren't going to take the House and Senate, um, suddenly the stock price of of Gilead, uh, yeah, of Gilead surged up big time. Yep. And by the way, this is the stock price for the last um, thirty plus years. It looks like, and I just want to point out that it's right at the end of twenty twelve that Gilead just booms 2012 
When was when was a uh, oh, I guess well Ebola's around that point. And West Africa Ebola outbreak 2013, yep. But it keeps going up through 2016 or maybe end of 20 you know, middle of 2015 is when it peaks. What kind of sense does this make? What's the signal? Uh, a Trump presidency seemed problematic. That's interesting thought, but it looks like it starts going down from the peak before Trump is elected, if I'm not mistaken. I'm actually just wondering if the run-up, like end of 2012, beginning of 2013, <laughs> is it possible that planning was underway, that the dollar was dying, we knew something big would happen, and we knew that pharmaceuticals would be involved. But how does it compare to either the rest of the pharmaceutical market or the, the stock market as a whole? Don't know. Didn't have time to research that. I, I got the first chart watching, uh, you know, poking through Mark's videos. <laughs> and then uh, you made a short video of this, Mark, um, a few weeks ago. And then um, I just thought to look at the longer chart, but I didn't have time to look at the broader market. I do know this, that health stocks went up like an order of a magnitude after uh, Obama passed the ACA and we were post mortgage bond crisis. So there may be some relationship there. Um, oh, and, and look, uh, <clears throat> uh, Robert Malone got suspended following 666 people on Twitter. That's a little cute. Um, but uh, he got all kinds of attention you know, thrusting toward Rogan. And, you know, I'm just pointing out May 3rd, 2020, Ed Dowd has a real interesting predictive thread. May, may be worth going and reading. But I'm going to go ahead and since, since we've taken so much time, I'm going to try to get us through this last part more quickly. <clears throat> just a reminder, uh, Malone and Kirsch uh, were kind of, you know, they put themselves out there at the same time, Dark Horse podcast. Yep. And I've got one more study to talk about that relates to Steve Kirsch. Uh, misinformation super spreader. And <clears throat> this was published uh, three, four days ago by Charles Wright. Um, turns out that that Steve funded a trial in which the standard of care for a lot of patients was remdesivir funded by the COVID Early Treatment Foundation. And it's interesting to read through this. It's also interesting to read his shirt. And I don't know if you can read this. I can't read it at this point. I knew what it said before, but it's like. <clears throat> uh, person, who shared, person who shares accurate but inconvenient. What? Truth. 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 Conflict with the approved narrative. Yep. But and the interesting thing is. Those labeled with this title are are gone. I no, I think he's going to say that are proved right within a few months or uh, sometimes years. It's Watchmen, so something like government uh, and its Watchmen. Yeah, okay. That part I thought was interesting because um, you know partially due to Mark and just 
um, a conversation with Mark and just sort of rethinking everything over and over again, I have actually grown to wonder if the pandemonium or World War E involves a non-state actor. And in fact, when Robert Malone talks about fifth generation warfare, it almost sounds to me like he is telegraphing the fact that one party is a non-state actor. Yeah, but couldn't that also just refer to the social media companies? If you want to call them the government. But I think that I think this is being a little more plain than that. I I mean, one of my hypotheses of World War E is globalists versus the United States of America. If you had to define the two strongest entities in the world, those might those might be perfectly reasonable descriptions. And then where do you sit them? Because for me, um, the most obvious place to put this would be somewhere like the city of London or um, the financial industry or banking or, I mean, because at some point we have to call spade a spade. Who are the people that are ultimately pulling strings are the people who hold the purse strings, I would believe. So anybody anybody with a weaponized pile of money or control over a weaponized pile of money. And this may also be why World War E is weird. I've, all, I've often referred to the military banking complex because I say, you know, in civilization in a kingdom, uh, the bank needs the bank needs to side with the military and the military needs the bank for financing. Right. There is a symbiotic relationship, but perhaps there is a point of instability <clears throat> in which one of these is trying to gain the upper hand over the other, which previously had the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Throwing it out there or maybe a, the American banking system was strong enough for a while. But um, now I, I don't even know what I'm saying there, but I, I, I still I do think about the Rothschild Empire and the Rothschilds, of course, banked John G. Rockefeller who created pharma medicine in the U S whose, whose son then created the um, uh, trilateral commission. Mm-hmm. And then we had 40 consecutive years of, of trilateral commission presidents, 40 consecutive years of presidents who were mentored by, or took, I'm just going to say orders. I mean, it sounds like Reagan answered the phone and said, okay, I'll take Bush. That's the story, right? But David Rockefeller, um, uh, Brzezinski uh, mentored Obama later on, and he was there through, gosh, Carter, Reagan, Bush. Um, You know, Clinton was mentored by David Rockefeller. Yeah, 40 consecutive years. So when I look at that and I think, Globalists could have been planting themselves in a lot of levers in order to be able to futz with the machinery of the United States and possibly even cause an autoimmune condition by which U.S. citizens want to tear down the body of their nation. Just a thought. Just saying it out loud right now. I don't think it's I don't think it's too crazy of a thought. I mean, a lot of us have been circling this idea from different angles. The 
the controlled demolition of America is something that I've often called it. It's, it's getting both sides to call for turning it down to the studs, basically. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has used that language before. I've heard Robert Malone use that language before. I've heard people as disparate as Kevin McCarran use that language before, where everything just needs to be burned all down. And, and I think irrespective of whether you come from the extreme left and say that the whole system is so corrupt that it should be brought down because of the systemic racism, or if you say that because they're lying about everything and, and, and that's why it needs to be burnt down. But both sides of, of that equation result in the same outcome, which is the destruction of the American democracy or the American Republic, as I guess we should call it. And Jay, I'm fairly certain you yourself have used that language. I'm having a vivid memory of one of our previous conversations together. And I think the reason this matters is uh, if people can be sort of fooled into accidentally doing that. Like if we wind up. I mean, a nice little example of it is this idea that that Americans, there are this fringe group of Americans on both sides that are advocating for one possible solution being a constitutional convention. And in reality, a constitutional convention could be the easiest way for us to flush everything down the toilet because by opening the constitution up for editing, it doesn't guarantee what edits will go in. You don't vote for a constitutional convention and agree on what you're gonna change until after it's open. And at that stage, if anybody lied in terms of their intentions on getting it open, we're screwed. And in reality, that's where we are already for 40 years. People telling us a, a story about what their motivations are and then not following through with it. And you could go and put this in a million different perspectives, but this is really how they do it. And the the solution to the pandemic um, may have been a planned solution to a problem that they themselves created. And I think most of us are there right now where we believe that that it's just a question of, you know, what degree to which everybody understood that they were part of an orchestrated event, whether it's, you know, you should take advantage of the inevitable or whether you should take uh, advantage of being on the same team or whether you should just, um, you know, keep your head down. I don't know. Everybody's controlled in a different way. There's not one explanation. And I, I said this to somebody earlier this morning on a private call that I think an easy way to summarize how we've been controlled in a lot of ways is to give a bunch of people um, uh, a set of talking points, A, B, and C, which are largely irrelevant, but correlate well with reality, and then prohibit everyone from talking about X, Y, and Z, which are the crucial points to discuss. And as long as you keep everybody arguing about A, B, and C, and have all of your performers arguing about A, B, and C, where they don't agree about one of the three things, then it seems like a really constructive conversation to have when in reality, you should be talking about these three things over here. And I think um, once we start to acknowledge that there are people who have been talking about A, B, and C from the very beginning, even before A, B, and C should have become relevant, you can start to identify people who have been part of the distraction machinery all along well one way or another i lean toward steve kirsch and robert malone 
being on whichever side wanted for remdesivir to wind up being the standard of care. Because if you judge the motivations by the outcomes, that seems to be what they've been a part of. Now, it's very possible that either or both of them were fooled. But it doesn't feel to me like either one of them is waving their arms around saying, on this topic, we were fooled. So I think the reason um, why is because they were instructed. And I think this is the difference. You, If you were told that you should never question remdesivir and even pro forma support it through a trial you fund or through whatever, then at that stage, they've got you. And they could have just agreed to this. And that's what I mean with A, B, and C. I think that they they released it in different combinations where they might have called Liam and said, Liam, you can talk about the spike protein and you can talk about gain-of-function viruses, but you can't talk about remdesivir. Then they called Brian Artis and they said, Brian Artis, you can talk about remdesivir as long as you talk about cobra venom and as long as you focus only on those two things. Then they called... Pierre Corey and they said, I know you think hydroxychloroquine works, but we need you to emphasize ivermectin and ignore hydroxychloroquine. And if you do that, your star will rise. Then they called somebody else and they said, you focus on VAERS, but don't question the protocols at all. Just talk about VAERS and your star will rise. And as long as they did this across the board, the whole narrative would never come together in terms of the history or in terms of the ultimate motivation. And for you, Matt, it may have been that they really never took you seriously until your hydroxychloroquine wars really started to take off. And then they had to find a way to distract you from that. It's very possible. And, and suddenly I'm on the DMED project. And I don't think that they expected me to solve that puzzle in four days. And I want to, I want to uh, add on JJ. So I, I haven't had anybody tell me not to talk about stuff, but I have certainly had there's at least one really specific instance where I, in retrospect, feel as though somebody was trying to aim me in a direction that would have completely destroyed any credibility I might have. And um, so I feel I've experienced at least a version of what you're talking about. And I don't think it always comes across. Um, you know, I think it can manifest in ways that would be really hard to identify. So I think it is real. Robert Malone will tell you fifth generation warfare is very complicated. And so, you know, there's a million permutations of it. And, you know, he, he, he just knows how it's done. He's not involved. This is why it's best to just lean on the truth as much as possible. And this is why the DMED project was so important when it went wrong is because I think a lot of good people were convinced to ignore the truth in order to go with what they were felt like and what they were told was going to be a powerful story. And it took the focus away from where it needed to be, which was the outside contractor handling the data. Why does that matter now? I mean, not only was it possibly one treason, but if that is the right place to look, that is the company that handles the U.S. border data. And if there is going to be any form of invasion or partial invasion or problem created, Suddenly, we have left a criminal unexamined. But you know what? I'm going to return to this one last study that we're going to discuss because this is the end of the slideshow. We can go wherever we want from here or we can close it out. We've been going for two and a half hours, and I thank you guys for, 
for <clears throat> your time and all your knowledge and energy. But this was a study that uh, was pointed out by Charles Wright that is listed on the CETF, the COVID Early Treatment Foundation website. That's Kirsch's foundation. <clears throat> and I'd never heard of this one. And what, what uh, Charles noticed, and by the way, this is uh, out of, uh, this is Denmark, uh, which is why all the names are, are Klingon. Um, what Charles noticed is that some, almost half of the participants in this trial were given remdesivir. And yet, no one thought to break down the study between did and did not see, uh, receive remdesivir. And of course, whoever ran the study has that data. They hold that data. And, um, and, and by the way, you know, this is a um, chemistat mesylate. And JJ, you can probably explain that better than I can. A protease inhibitor. Uh, I, I, I guess it's used as part of HIV cocktails. Yeah, I don't know the, the specific mechanism on how it interferes with replication, though. <laughs> Remdesivir was administered to 96 participants, which were 47% of each group. And there were deaths in the study. It was about the same in, in both arms. So they determined that this protease inhibitor did not work. Um, I just want to point out, though, when, when you search under Steve's substack for remdesivir, you don't find much. He doesn't talk about it much. But he does have this one article from late 2021 that lists all the things, you know, it's pages long, all the things that he would do if he were king, basically, king of the pandemic. And what he said about hospitals, I, I clipped these, I, I shoved them together at the beginning of the article and the part about hospitals. Uh, number two, halt the use of remdesivir for hospitalized patients. It doesn't work and it is basically killing people. I think for hospitalized patients, I agree that it doesn't work. It may help you know, antiviral early, but it's also way too expensive to use early. Uh, and it's probably also not the best thing. So <clears throat> is it killing people? Probably, probably some uh, people who are, you know, more subject to renal failure. Um, you know, I, I, it, there's probably a, a subset of people for whom it increases the, the chance of death. That's my opinion, reading through the data. Perhaps for some people, it's fine. Review the transcript of the 2021, the, the infamous, just the Dark Horse podcast show, right? Just the one. Uh, Steve Kirsch mentioned remdesivir, I think, five times. Uh, Malone mentioned it once in response to Kirsch and then immediately said something else. Malone didn't really want to talk about remdesivir. Kirsch was putting it out there, something that wasn't working. Um, now, uh, I don't know Kirsch well, uh, you know, I met him in person once he gave me the weakest handshake I've ever received. Uh, so I don't think he was too excited to see me, uh, at the, uh, at the RFK event, but nonetheless, uh, I give him credit that at least back in that time, 
he seemed uh, he was without uh, being uh, prompted, bringing up the topic of remdesivir. Uh, now, he doesn't bring it up anymore, unfortunately. Uh, and if you're in a Twitter space and Kirsch is there, if someone mentions remdesivir within 30 seconds after that person hangs up, it will never come up again. Um, I don't know why that is. Uh, it's It doesn't look good. It's a really bad look. But back then, Kirsch would bring it up. Uh, but in, and Malone did not want it brought up. Now, conversely, I do want to give credit because I I made it I made it, you know, about halfway through Malone's Lies My Government Told Me book, which is mostly a collection of essays written by other people, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, but in the part that is written by him or Jill, more likely, uh, as he notes in the opening of the book, um, he does make a uh, remdesivir being run death is near joke and and he does explicitly say it's a bad thing so i just want to make sure we don't let that pass us by okay well that's good that's good but, that, when was that book 2022 i think this was the end of 2022 but also that doesn't then mean he's taken a meaningful stance against it it just means he's mentioned it at least in this case so or or that that we're far enough along that um you know what impact could it actually have yeah, and, and you know what? Um, you might as well tell the truth. Well, would have been nice if he didn't cut me off in the conference, but the at the inaugural CHD conference, I stood up at the end to ask a question, and he and Jill both yelled out questions. <laughs> Try to make sure I didn't uh, ask Bobby a question at the end of that conference, which was about remdesivir and uh, uh, a couple of cases of uh, people who've we're lost to it. Um, but I guess, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, it, it, look, there's, there's a lot of no name people like myself. I won't say you guys are there, but like myself who I think throughout history push things, right? The real narrative that you see in the newspapers for since forever is pushed by people who aren't there and that's fine. Uh, so I don't see my job as, being famous, but I think that, you know, myself and there's probably a lot of other people I don't know and I've even met and some people I have who you can just see the big narrative, things that are in books like that popping, popping up that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So, you know, that's our role right now. At least I feel comfortable with that being my role. Uh, and that's how I can, you know, justify, you know, keep doing what I'm doing. So the fact that he brought it up is good. However, uh, he, it's still not mentioned in there that programs he was on at the very least played a role in making remdesivir available and remdesivir being available and pushed was part of the, led to the perception of the, uh, the lethality of this virus being virus higher than it was, which led to the emergency use authorization. And now we're still having conversations, not factoring that in. So uh, it's great. It's in a 5G warfare book or whatever it is. Uh, no, this is lies I government told me, followed by 5G warfare. But 5G warfare would exactly be someone uh, saying that they are the, the here to rescue when, in fact, they might have played a role in causing it uh, in, in the first place. Yeah. Um, and even more interesting, I, I think you just said he didn't mention domain. And he in fact, he doesn't. But he does in all but name 
which is really interesting. So um, he gives you everything you need except what you need to actually then go and learn more. Um, uh, one more thing. Uh, uh, George Webb earlier mentioned the, uh, the dose pairing studies, dose pairing uh, methods with hydroxychloroquine and uh, uh, remdesivir. Uh, I, that's an unusual, relatively, I, I think we know what George Webb meant by that, but that's an unusual phrasing. And it was used, that's a phrase that was used by Robert Malone in a 2011 phone call or phone conference that he participated in as someone as a subject matter expert on whether or not children in the United States should be used as subjects for anthrax vaccine testing. Um, and uh, a variety of people called in there as uh, there was like a panel of like 11 people. Um, right, I uh, saw this on a Substack the other yeah, day. Malone mentioned that phrase dose pairing. He, did, he, he didn't say great idea. He didn't say bad idea. He sort of suggested, well, the funding is there and we should look into the dose pairing part of this. So I'm like, a dose pairing? Well, well, what the heck is that? I can't find that phrase except for one other usage, and that was seven days later. Uh, Thomas Inglesby mentioned it in a September 11th, 2001 congressional review. He said dose pairing, and they are again talking about anthrax, and Thomas Inglesby, I think, was University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. He was also in the dark winter stuff. He was also talking about anthrax. So the only two times I can find that phrase are seven or 14 days apart, Malone, Inglesby, both talking about anthrax vaccine testing. Okay, so am I right in saying that that's sort of like a duality, uh, like a, a rival pair of therapeutics that you might then be able to attach to like, uh, I don't know, ash conformity or propaganda, public relations, um, like it, it almost sounds like if, if my understanding of it is right, it sounds like the way you would converse about something if your goal were to fix the results, not test them. The, that phrase seemed to have some value it was being used at that time for reasons I don't understand. You know, sometimes I benefit from not having the, the, the molecular biology degree because I'm just looking at the words, the phrases, the context, the patent numbers and names and institutions and everything else. Right. Um, and when I just I'm just looking for the phrase and I actually had to find it spelled differently to find that match. If it wasn't for a C-SPAN bug on their their website doing it, the transcription, uh, doing this building the transcription. I wouldn't have found it at all, but it was just odd that those are the only two uses of it. And they were, they were both about anthrax and they were only, uh, I said seven days, I think it was 14 days apart in 2011 reviewing, reviewing anthrax vaccines. Inglesby well, and Malone. So much of this stuff has started to congeal. If I can use that word, cause it's gross. Uh, has started to congeal in my mind as as really a an enchantment of language and mm. um, in this respect I think they may have indeed tried out a number of concepts like this to see if they would be useful enough to apply into the future another one that may have originated around the same time that I'm still incredibly frustrated with is immunobridging 
this idea that measuring antibody responses with a diagnostic in in adults has any relevance to children. And instead of testing it on one group, we can just approve it in that group based on the idea that our diagnostic says they're equivalent. And if dose pairing could have been one of these concepts that they tried out and people saw through it or the regulatory committees at that time didn't permit it. Um, I'm trying to think of some scenarios where, where this has happened more recently. Um, but I think essentially a lot of this stuff is tested like that. It's, it's tested to see if how people respond to it. Um, and the, the kind of attack that we are under, if you want to keep, we got to keep lambasting uh, the expert on this, Robert Malone, the fifth generation warfare that we're being subjected to is largely uh, language based. And I think this is the reason why they want you to believe that chat GTP understands as opposed to breaking the illusion that, that, that language is some kind of, you know, higher form of intelligence rather than a, a abstraction of the world. As I was educated by my friend a couple of days ago, um, it's an abstraction of the world that, that relies on patterns. And so if an AI can figure out how to win at Go, it doesn't mean that AI understands the concept of Go. It understands the pattern that results in more winning than losing. And once you discover a kink in that armor, now it can be beaten again. And I think that we're at the stage where people are trying to to suggest that promises that were made 10 and 20 years ago are about to be fulfilled, but they're actually nowhere closer to being fulfilled than they were made than when they were made 20 years ago. And AI is one of these tools that I think can be used for almost unlimited theater. And I made this joke in our private chat, but I'm not really making a joke when I say that these AI image programs could just as easily be a room full of highly trained uh, Photoshop enthusiasts that are being paid to create the illusion of an AI that can spit out four uh, images relatively quickly. And again, I understand that it's possible that AI can do some of these things, but I also want to stress that it's possible to create the illusion that AI is doing something that it's not. And I think that is a far far greater potential than the potential that AI represents to genuinely solve any of these greater problems. Mark, you're muted. The misuse of computers and the misrepresentation, the mischaracterization of compute capabilities is a big part of the COVID story. It's bigger than, than I, I never, I didn't think it was any part of it at all when I started. Um, it, but getting people to believe that the computer will come up with the right answer. In reality, it's just a bunch of scripts written by other people to analyze spreadsheets, uh, uh, is, is that is part of it. Now, think of how much guidance was taken. It was, it was religion that these computer platforms would spit out right answers. I worked in the computing industry for 22 years. I loved it. These are awesome machines, but they're machines. That's what they are. And they they continue to have more capabilities. But 
uh, you know, where we based, we allowed the output of a computer program that we can't see the source code to, nor can we even know how it was tested to guide our standard of care. How do we know that this domain platform, if it exists, whether it was just repurposed, how do you know it gave the right answer? What if it said cranberry juice, battery acid, you know, cocktails? Uh, how do you know it was the right answer? Well, you, uh, you don't know. And, and, and because it was defined as something that gives the right answer to something that never existed before, <laughs> that means you actually need to have had a novel disease before and, and you need to show that the thing gave you the right answer for that disease. And it's none of this was done. It was just taken and they ran with it. And they encouraged us to ignore everything else. They told people, don't trust your instincts anymore. Medicine has completely changed. Don't don't treat symptoms anymore. You have to. It's all prescriptive based upon computers and some uh, some testing that we're not going to give you the results of. That is nasty, nasty stuff. Um, and. Uh, it's unfortunate that there's not enough people within the information technology industry that are willing to, to have the things between their legs to stand up and call this out. They are such suckers for mainstream narrative. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It is one of the most embarrassing and surprising parts about the modern world of computer science. Uh, it went, I'm sorry, I'm hijacking program a little bit. But there was a nasty thing that happened when they took computer computer engineers and they moved it into the world of computer science at many academic institutions 25 or so years ago. I am one of the last. I, I am age 49. I'm turning 50 this year. That is right around the. I am one of the last breed of computer engineering de, uh, uh, graduates at the University of You just called it. They took computer it scientism. Scientists. They made it scientists. Computer, computer, computer I learned from mainframe guys, and those guys they were those were serious engineers. And this is why it's become the matrix. The matrix yes. is computer scientism taken to the corporate governance level, and yeah. that's that that may be the correct description of World War E. Sorry, it was a, it was an unrelated, but it was related, you know. It, it, so it, it was the it was right mindset. You call it computer Scientology, though, because then it, <laughs> it should be. Yeah, they okay. do all of these ordered analysis. You don't. You just just throw computer the algorithm at the cloud. Okay. I'm like, okay, we we're gonna have to wrap thing up. But anyways, up if if for no other reason because uh, I slept exactly zero hours last night. Okay, but since Great you brought job. up uh, computer Scientology, um, <laughs> next week, if either of you guys want to join me. I'm in. If 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 we don't have another Liam, we don't have a guest scheduled yet, do we? Because I want to. I have to check. I don't. I want to hit the Scientology thread following up this because I just watched Robert Malone get interviewed by a Scientologist who owns a castle in England and is part mm -hmm. of the In Davos crowd, and uh, it, it it's a very interesting set of relationships this guy's uh i hear he's conservator of the crown jewels and he's a giant q honor and it's weird where scientology and q are all over the medical freedom movement 
and I have some theories as to why. And you know, it's 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 a wacky topic, maybe, especially when you insert QAnon in there. That, that's a that's a wacky topic. And I yeah. think we should open the stream next week with the audio of Tom Cruise yelling at his at his at his set where he's like, "You take your mask off and you're up there." Like, of course we will. <laughs> of course we will. That is how it will begin. So um, either or both you guys are invited. Uh, but let's go ahead and wrap this. Uh, Let's go wrap this one up with a big bow. <laughs> Let's do it. This has been just nuts. Um, I have the links for where everybody can go find you guys, and I highly recommend they do. Um, JJ, I know um, you've had a little bit of a, a, a hiatus. Are you uh, going to be coming back with live streams in the near future? In the near future, as in the next couple days, I'm going to pull the trigger. I just, it's. Um... I am with my time off, I've produced a number of different possible starting points. And so I have to decide which one I'm going to pull the trigger on. I have to apologize to all my supporters and viewers for having been gone, but I got sick after the Boston thing. And then, um, I don't know, it took me a while to recover. Uh, that's all I can really say. I have been recovering, but, um, it's also one of those things where I have to confess that you get momentum and then once you lose that momentum, it, it there's a little inertia there. So yeah. Um, anyway, thanks well, for that. Yeah, and yeah. I I I I think your supporters. Well, speaking as as one of them, um, I think there's uh, a, a deep understanding of the amount of work you've put in over the last few years and how totally reasonable it is, whether for illness or anything else for you to take a couple of weeks to you have to take breaks. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know, and I've seen, I, I'm not sure if you've seen these discussions as well in comment sections, but I know people have been very supportive of that idea, even in the absence of specific updates. So just so you know, you've, you've a lot of people still have your back. Um, Thank you very much, Liam and everybody for that matter. I know um, Matt has had my back for a while, so I got to give a big shout out to Matt and a big shout out to Mark because they're two of the most important people in my in my corner right now. Um, now, speaking of Mark, where can people find you, my friend? Uh, website, Housatonic.live, H-O-U-S-A-T-O-N-I-C. I have uh, three channels on YouTube. I just call them Live 1, 2, and 3. And I back everything up on YouTube, excuse me, onto BitChute, Odyssey, and Rumble. I'm currently on my backup channel, yeah. Houstonic Live 2, is what it is. I'm always, I am always so close to getting kicked off the platform. I'm not even sure if it's worth it anymore. But anyways, and I have a, a large online archive uh, as well, which frequently starts to pop up in the Google search results right now. That's got to feel good. Well, yeah, and, uh... yeah it does. <laughs> Plug yeah, yourself too, would you, Liam? Because you never really do that. And um, although I, I think, yes. I think you, you, you do the, you do the facilitator role very well. But I think you should also, at some point, uh, realize that you, your deputy badge is worth plugging as well. Liam, I, I bet Liam's Friday show is going to be great for people who who thought this conversation was important. Uh, and Liam's shows have been awesome lately, but. Look, badge of honor, I think, uh, and I'll, I'll take Matthew. He's decided that it was my show on uh, the Pfizer, Jordan, Trishan Walker thing that got us kicked off YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, so uh, I'll wear that with honor. about that today. I meant to talk about that today, but you know what? Um, we'll let that one go for now. 
Well, and and thank you though, JJ, because this Friday I am going to be talking about uh, David Bulware more. I'm doing a deep dive. I've learned some very interesting things that I haven't heard other people talk about. So on Friday, rounding the news, um, come come hang out there. And speaking of Google as well, roundingtheearth.com. I've been working on getting our website uh, further up in the Google search results as well, and posting our shows there as we do them. And um, yeah, and. Uh, Look, if you do want to hear more from me specifically, I am a musician. Uh, and if you want to hear what that means, you can go to liamsturgis.com. Hmm. Um, I, I have a fun album I put out almost a year ago. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to say that. And um, for Rounding the Earth, roundingtheearth.locals.com is the best place to go to support the show. And um, ah, how's that for plugs? <laughs> Yeah, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Matthew has to go to the bathroom because we talked too long. Yes. Um, thanks very much. And I'll see you next week, I guess. huh? Sounds great, gentlemen. Thank you again. And we'll see you next week. Thank you to everybody for watching. Um, look, we've had just looking at Rumble alone. We have 265 people watching right now, but we have six point. Well, we have 6000 people who have tuned in at various points on Rumble alone throughout this stream. This has been uh, completely unprecedented. And also, just we don't have George Webb here at the end. Really appreciate him coming on as well. And you can find his Substack in the description. And um, yeah, so thank you to everybody who has been having a tremendously robust discussion on Rumble. Thank you to uh, even more folks over on Locals who have been uh, for longer than I can even load um, contributing to the discussion and um, over on Rockfin and Odyssey as well, and potentially even Facebook and CloudHub. And those of you who somehow found my uh, my YouTube channel where I'm secretly streaming. So anyway, we'll leave that there. Thank you all so much. And we'll see you again shortly. <music>